lose myself Everything I have found here I'm not found by myself Try and sometimes you'll succeed To make this man of me All my stolen missing parts I've no need for anymore Cause I believe And I believe Cause I can see Our future days Days of you So The Last of Us Part 2 opens with Joel discussing the ending events of the first game. The camera's focused on the fretboard of the guitar, which has a very distinctive symbol on it, which will be important later. I want you to take a mental picture of this scene, because it's going to come back all the way at the end of the game. During this conversation between Joel and Tommy, Joel explains his decision to save Ellie over humanity. Now, even this point was one of controversy when the game first launched. You see, at the end of the first game, there was a serious question as to whether or not the Fireflies would be able to develop a vaccine at all. It was one of the reasons that a lot of people thought that Joel's actions were highly justified, not just in that he was saving Ellie, his daughter character, but rather that he didn't want to sacrifice Ellie's life for the sake of a cause which likely wouldn't find success anyways. After all, the Fireflies in the first game are pretty damn incompetent. They hire somebody from outside their ranks to transport who is likely the most important human being who has ever lived in the form of Ellie, all the way across the country in order to hopefully develop a vaccine. But when you get there and you explore the hospital at the end of the first game, you find out that a lot of the doctors involved in this procedure are unsure as to whether or not it's even possible. After all, literally every single person in this hospital is completely inexperienced in developing a vaccine for a fungus such as this. But the Firefly's argument is that at least there's a chance. If Ellie runs off and they don't even attempt to extract any of the antibodies or whatever the hell is inside of her brain that allows her to survive after having a bite, then they will never know whether or not a vaccine is possible. But if they crack her skull open and try and develop some sort of vaccine, at the very least, then there's a chance. However, in the opening for this sequel, we see that Joel is pretty confident that they were trying to develop a vaccine and that they likely would have been able to, but that it would have killed her. But it's Tommy's expression that I think sets the tone for how the player is supposed to feel about Joel's decision. He's stunned, but at the same time, he can't really blame Joel for the choice that he made. After all, later on in this very intro sequence, Tommy turns to Joel and tells him that he would have done the same thing. Regardless, the choice to open the game in this way is very, very important. The writers over at Naughty Dog wanted to remind the player of what Joel had done and establish that as the fulcrum from which every narrative mechanism will hinge. After this conversation, Tommy, still unsure of how to react, simply tells Joel to hop on his horse and head back into town. It buys Tommy some time in order to form an opinion, and it also gives the player a chance to settle back into this world. 
It's really common for sequels to rush into things, giving the player a chance to see something new and fresh and different that they only could have dreamed of in the first game. However, and thankfully, Naughty Dog doesn't do this. They take their time during this intro to set things up, and I think it works very, very well. You ride through a beautiful landscape and come up on Jackson, and it's at this time that we get our first look at a fully realized Jackson, the city that we saw a peak of at the end of the first game, but that we could only imagine. And I've got to hand it to Naughty Dog. This opening sequence has one of the most well-realized cities I've ever seen in any video game ever. It truly is fantastic. Every NPC, every animation, every building, every step in the snow is detailed and realistic. As far as immersion is concerned, I think this is one of the most fantastically effective games that's ever been created. After you reach the inside of the city, Tommy and Joel hop off of their horses and Tommy offers to stow Joel's horse for him while also saying that he'll take the truth to his grave. This implies a couple of things. For one, it might seem as though he's referring directly to Ellie, that if Ellie were to find out this truth, it would cause a lot of problems. After all, as far as Ellie is concerned, Joel simply took Ellie after a bunch of tests were run, and it was clear that she was not going to be able to provide any sort of help towards a vaccine at all. At the end of the first game, it's pretty clear that Ellie sees through this lie that Joel is telling, or at the very least, she expects that there's more to this story for the sake of their relationship, she simply goes along with it. However, I think there's another implication to this as well, and that is that if other people in the camp were to find out what Joel had done, I'm not so sure that they would approve of it either. Again, we can talk all day about how incompetent the Fireflies were in the first game, and I think there's a real argument to be had there. I mean, if I had to entrust them with the fate of humanity, I would hop on the next asteroid off the planet. What I mean, though, is that Naughty Dog is trying to tell a story and they're framing the plot points the way that they want you, the player, to see them. For the sake of this story, it's important to understand that the Fireflies were the ones that were trying to save humanity and were apparently on the cusp of developing a vaccine to save countless millions of lives. And once again, for the sake of this story that's being told in The Last of Us Part 2, Joel is the one that undid that. Again, at the very least, if Ellie had gone under the knife, there would have been a chance for a vaccine. By killing the doctors that were about to operate on Ellie and potentially develop a vaccine, he effectively saved his daughter figure, but he damned all of humanity for the rest of time. In other words, he strained at a gnat, but swallowed a camel. He traded what seemed to be a smaller evil for a much, much larger evil, and he did this because his judgment was clouded by his own personal wants and wishes. This isn't to say that Joel would or does regret any of this in this particular sequence, but it is to say that the player should start seriously considering whether or not Joel's actions were justified, or perhaps even whether or not they were right. But don't worry, Naughty Dog is going to help you think about this by constantly bringing it up using flashbacks as Ellie grew up in Jackson. And I promise you, before you know it, you might even be convinced that Joel is in fact a villain. This isn't to say that Joel is an unlikable character, that you should hate him or wish that he were dead, but rather, Joel is the one that damned humanity. If you tell any other story and there's a character which damns humanity for the sake of one single person, we would say he's a bad guy. 
Or perhaps we wouldn't even say bad guy. We would simply say that he was a confused or perhaps mistaken individual whose motivations were complex. But the point is, it's not as simple as hero and villain. There's a lot of gray in between. Now this intro sequence is just shortly after Joel's arrival while Ellie is still young. She's living out of a grandmother's suite in the back of the house that is presumably owned by Joel. It's super cute that she has her own space, but it even now shows and tells a lot about their relationship. Now granted, Joel is a middle-aged man that found this little girl and he took her halfway across the country rescued her from a bunch of cannibals, and now has her in a town that his brother runs with his wife. It could be presumed that her staying in his house could be considered inappropriate, but I don't think that's the point here. Joel is Ellie's father figure, and I don't think that's a controversial thing to say. The fact that Ellie wants space, physical space, separated from him, means a lot. Regardless, we see Ellie and she's drawing something that will come back time and time again throughout the rest of the game. She's actually pretty artsy and gifted artistically. You'll see this in the notebook that you'll be using throughout the course of the main game. She often draws pictures of what she sees or sketches out different things in order to remind her to return to that area or simply to keep a journal of the events and happenings of the main story. She's listening to music when Joel comes in. It's a really cute and awkward moment, but it's pretty damn sweet. It doesn't take a body language expert to see that there's a lot of tension here. Joel's unsure of how to stand, where to move, how to talk, how to relate to her, and Ellie picks up on this as well. The tension is really palpable. They both know what happened in Utah hasn't been resolved, but neither knows how to broach the topic, so they simply delay it and push it off. But the point of this sequence is for Joel to express how much he needs Ellie in his life. Let's all just take a moment to relax and appreciate how beautiful this scene is and how Ellie responds in classic Ellie fashion. If I ever were to lose you, I surely Myself. Everything I have found here, I'm not found by myself. Trying sometimes you'll succeed to make this pain of me. All my stolen missing parts, I've no need for anymore. I believe And I believe Cause I can see Our future days Days of you and me
And I'm sure I don't need to tell you this, but this song is going to come up time and time again throughout the course of the main story, so make sure that you remember it. Though I'm sure I don't need to tell you that because you'll likely remember this for the rest of your life, considering how unbelievably touching it was. Also, a funny little thing that Neil Druckmann tweeted out. Apparently, he had been asked many, many times on Twitter and in person why Pearl Jam's Future Days was used in the game. People asked this because the song didn't actually drop until October of 2013, officially. And that is actually a month after Outbreak Day in this universe, so it shouldn't have actually existed. Neil Druckmann responded by saying, Glad you asked. You see, it was performed live and posted on YouTube months prior to the album's release. And you can actually go look it up on YouTube, and sure enough, Pearl Jam performed this live, and that video was posted on July 26th of 2013. That's the actual date of the video. It's a perfect example of Naughty Dog's excessive attention to detail. I don't think anybody would have cared particularly if this song released three years after Outbreak Day, but the fact that they took it upon themselves to find a song that fit the theme and the tone of the game, and that fit so perfectly within Joel and Ellie's relationship, and then to also make sure that it fit in with the timeline they were dealing with, it's unbelievable. But once again, it's one of the examples of Naughty Dog's perfectionism. They don't need to care about these little things, but they do, and that's what sets them apart, whether you love them or hate them. After this touching flashback, we cut to Ellie waking up late. Jesse, a character we'll get to see a little bit throughout the course of the game, is at her front door giving her crap for sleeping in. Over the next 10 or so minutes as you walk through the town, you have a recap of everything that went down and then some in the trailer from E3 2018. Now I found this particularly interesting because that sequence where Dina and Ellie share their first kiss, I thought was a pretty important sequence to see, but Naughty Dog doesn't show it to the player, at least not right now. Instead, they rely on the dialogue to explain what happened. But I can't help but notice that this is the first instance where trailers are important to a contextual grasp of the game itself. Because after all, in this case, the scene that's being discussed isn't actually shown to the player until the last 15 or so minutes of the game. Time and time again, stuff that was shown in the trailers is either changed drastically or is moved around such that you need to have seen the trailer in order to truly understand what's going on. Now I understand it's a small thing to point out or be frustrated by, because after all, chances are every single person who bought the game had seen that trailer. However, I still think it's strange to show a scene in a trailer, but then not show it in the game when that item is being discussed. It's one of countless times in this game when Naughty Dog will take a sequence, cut it up into 15 different parts, and then spread it randomly, seemingly, throughout the course of the story. Sometimes I think it helps with pacing by giving the player a break from a very stressful environment or activity, but often it feels as though it's jarring and out of nowhere. But don't worry, we're going to get to some very egregious examples of this later on in the story. All that's really important to understand is that Ellie and Dina shared a first kiss, a character that we meet briefly, said something offensive and bigoted, and everybody wants you to know that it's bigoted, you get some sandwiches, and then you go off to start on patrol. It's also important to understand that Jesse just broke up with Dina around a week to a week and a half before this is taking place. 
or maybe Dina broke up with him, or maybe it was mutual. I don't know. It's it's so high school, these first few conversations. It's kind of painful. Jesse heads off to the stable to prepare the horses and the rest of the attendees, while Dina and Ellie share in a snowball fight against a bunch of kids. Now, I kind of found this snowball fight to be a little weird, because it seems as though it's meant to serve as some sort of combat introduction, but I think I was just reading too much into it, because I don't think it does a very good job of that. Now, I did go back through the game a second time, as I stated previously, on New Game Plus and on the hardest difficulty. After becoming completely familiarized with the controls after playing the entire game, this whole snowball fight was much more intriguing and interesting and frankly fun than it was the first time I played. The three-tiered stance that Ellie's able to have between standing crouched and prone is something that takes a minute to get used to. I know it sounds weird because that's true of pretty much any third-person or first-person shooter, that they're going to have those three stances. But in The Last of Us Part Two, there are multiple levels of movement associated with each. And that's more my point. This sequence does a very poor job of introducing the player to those three stances, but you are able to use each of those three stances in this sequence. It just seems a little jarring, but I will admit I appreciate the effort that they put into this because it's still way better than the alternative, which would be to have the standard stereotypical sequence where the protagonist goes and is shown how to use a gun and it's like you shoot bottles or some crap. I, I hate that. Probably the most egregious example would be the opening of Fallout 3 when you're given a BB gun and then you go downstairs, shoot some targets, and then some giant rad roaches. I, I just think that that's so overplayed. If you're going to introduce shooting mechanics in combat, you should at the very least have a little bit of a creative spin to it. So I appreciate that throwing compacted snow at children was presented here. After hucking some powder, you meet up with Dina. There's some awkward exchanges where Ellie isn't sure how to talk to her. I mean, again, it's, it's very high school. The two walk to the stables and you head out on patrol. Then the first surprise of the game hits. And to be honest, it's a surprise even if you had the game spoiled for you. You see, the camera slowly pans over a bunch of sleeping young adults. It centers on one girl who most of us will immediately recognize from the Paris Games trailer from 2017. She gets up, talks to a young man who asks to show her something, and then we are given control of her. Like I said earlier, I had the game spoiled for me, but all of those spoilers said that you were going to get to play half of the game as Abby and start halfway through. I did not expect to be playing as her within the first 30 to 45 minutes. Now I bet you at this point some people had put the game down. After all, there was a very vocal minority that said that they were going to flip out if you didn't play the whole game as Ellie and or Joel. But a key thing to understand here is that the player must give it time and effort to stand on its own and justify itself. In the same way that you can't judge a book by its cover or a film by its trailer, you'll never get an informed opinion of the game if you don't give it a chance. This isn't to say that you have to play every single game in order to have an opinion of every single game, but rather that if you're going to have an extremely negative or critical opinion of a game, you have to be able to justify that critical opinion. And in my opinion, I don't think it's fair to say that playing as any character other than the one on the box art is bad and means that the game is terrible and not worth your time. 
After you take control of Abby and you start exploring through the woods, walking through some pretty deep snow, seeing some interesting landscapes, these two characters share in some dialogue about other people in the group, likely the same people that you just saw the camera pan over. Now we don't know any of these people at this point, and Naughty Dog will do this a lot. They are unapologetic in their unexplained dialogue. The characters will have conversations that make sense to them, but might not, or perhaps don't, make any sense at all to the player. Now, I love this, though I do admit that it can be confusing to those who like to enjoy their content more passively, but this is a narrative game. It seems like it comes with the territory of this type of game to have dialogue that's much more realistic and grounded compared to dialogue that just hits you over the head with exposition. I also think it's important to note that these conversations make a second run of the game awesome. Seriously, Every single thing they're discussing here makes perfect sense and is relatable and understandable once you've gone through the whole game and met all of these characters and grown to know them and care about them throughout the course of the story. And as somebody that usually plays through games that I critique at least two times, I really appreciated this because it made it so my second run through was more informed and more interesting than my first run through. Really, I think you should play the game a second time through just to give it a shot. I think you'll be surprised at how many little things were added that you didn't hear before. But for the sake of a first run through, it's important to note that Abby and Owen are the names of these two characters. They seem to have a previous relationship. In other words, they dated, they had some sort of romantic involvement at some point. And also that some girl named Mel, who Owen is apparently involved with at this point, is pregnant. Now, maybe I'm all alone in this, but the second I heard she was pregnant, I got a pit in my stomach. This is what I meant when I tweeted out early in my first run-through of the game that I felt as though the opening was dreadful. I meant it in the purest sense of the word, that the game fills you with dread. You have a sinking feeling in your stomach that something terrible is about to happen. And I don't know if it's just that the game was spoiled and so everybody saw this coming, or that it's some sort of masterful way that they designed all of these conversations and scenes that makes you feel as though there's an impending danger and doom. I don't know which it is. I would love to hear your opinion of it down in the comment section below or tweet it at me at Luke Stevens TV. But nonetheless, I can't help but feel as though everything terrible that could happen is about to happen. And so when I heard that this girl Mel was pregnant, I just knew something horrible was going to happen to her and likely that one of the characters we were being introduced to on Ellie's side of the fence would likely become pregnant to contrast the two relationships and to set up narrative beats where you could have one character faced with an option, have the other character faced with the other option, and see how each reacts in their individual moments. But I understand that that likely doesn't make any sense at all if you haven't played through the game yourself, so I'm simply going to move on and loop back to it later. I promise it'll make sense. Abby and Owen reach their destination and they overlook Jackson. It's a massive city. And judging Abby's reaction, it seems as though she didn't expect it to be this massive at all. It's not clear what they're looking for, but it's a man for sure. Anyone with two brain cells to rub together will instantly know that they're talking about and looking for Joel, though we don't know why at this particular moment. 
Now, Owen doesn't think that they should continue on this quest to reach whoever they're looking for, because they obviously aren't going to be able to infiltrate Jackson no matter how hard they try. They're a small group, and they aren't going to be able to do it, so he thinks that they should just turn back. Especially since Mel is now pregnant, they need to return to take care of her. Again, remember this plot point. Owen, the dude wants to turn back to make sure that he can take care of the woman that he impregnated. It seems like a weird, random thing to say, but this is something that's going to be repeated later in the story, and Ellie is going to be making the same decision that Abby makes in this moment. A stupid one. Naughty Dog will do this a lot throughout the course of the main story where they will have Abby do something and then change it with a fresh coat of paint and have Ellie do the same exact thing. But you can't help but feel as though Ellie is more justified in her actions while Abby is just a bad villainous character. This game is all about perspectives and this flip-flopping that they do constantly is an important piece of that narrative mechanism. Now Abby obviously doesn't want to turn back. They've traveled presumably for days, weeks, and even months to get to where they are now and simply to turn around upon seeing the city of Jackson it doesn't seem like it's a good option. Owen says that they should return back to the mansion they're staying at, but Abby doesn't like that recommendation. And she starts to become enraged and she pushes on herself towards Jackson, trying to find a patrol that was traveling that Owen spotted in order to get them to tell her where their target is so that she can finish the job herself before returning back to wherever they came from. Controlling Abby, you push forward into an impending storm. You fight some zombies, and you eventually find some tracks from one of the patrols. These patrols are the same ones that characters such as Ellie, Dina, Jesse, Joel, and Tommy are all on. And this is the first of a plethora of coincidences in the early hours of the game that set up its narrative. The coincidence that Abby happened to be driven into a rage at the same time that Joel and everyone else happens to be out on patrol, it's going to happen a lot. Joel is an old man, as is Tommy, at the very least older than all the youngsters that they have out on the patrols with them. The fact that Joel is still going on patrols is, in my opinion, a bit of a stretch. It would be stupid for him to go on patrols, especially because he has a leadership position within the city. His super fancy house, I think, serves as proof positive of that. Not to mention that Tommy, his brother, who is also going out on patrols with him, has a leadership position within the city. In many ways, Tommy runs the city along with his wife. So to me, it just seems like a bit of a stretch that Tommy and Joel would be going out on patrols at all. But I understand that perhaps Joel or Tommy just want to get out and get their hands dirty. They don't want to feel old. They don't want to feel as though they can't contribute. So they want to go out and do things themselves. I understand that. Perhaps that's justifiable but I can't help but feel as though Joel and Tommy being out on patrols, the same patrol routes that Ellie, Dina, and Jesse are taking was purely designed and established that way to make sure that Abby would be able to encounter Joel and Tommy while she randomly ran through the forest. And this is the reason that I don't like narrative coincidences. Often, it's just a giveaway that the writers are trying to force characters into normally unjustifiable situations. But it's not always a bad thing. In fact, in some cases, I think these coincidences can lead to some really interesting sequences. I mean, look at that scene from Breaking Bad where Jane's father runs into Walt at a bar. 
They share a short conversation about fatherhood, about kids, and they don't realize that they're talking about two characters, in this case, Jesse and Jane, who are inextricably tied and who are about to go on a roller coaster together. For those of you who have seen the show and know what happens right after this meeting, you're going to probably think roller coasters a bit of an understatement, but I didn't want to spoil it. So the point is go watch Breaking Bad. It's awesome. The other point is that narrative coincidences can be fine. After all, coincidences do happen in real life all the time. The problem comes when they're used to make characters do things they wouldn't otherwise be doing in order to fulfill some sort of plot point. It's the same reason I hate psychics or prophecies in stories, because I think that they're just lazy. The writers know that they want a character to go and do something, so they write some sort of prophecy to explain how it's going to happen, and then they make sure that they have characters that fit around that prophecy, and if it's a little messy or if it doesn't seem to be totally justified narratively or in terms of the character's motivations, they simply explain it by way of, well, he or she was fulfilling the prophecy. It had to happen. Happen. It must have happened because the prophecy stated it's just lazy. And while I feel as though many of the instances of coincidences in The Last of Us Part Two are not justifiable and are egregious offenses, I think that other instances are more justifiable and could be explained. But eventually, there become so many that stack up on top of each other, it just seems as though Naughty Dog needed Joel to run into Abby and this was the fastest, cleanest way that they could figure out how to do that. In a previous episode of Knit Grit, a show that I do here on YouTube, I discussed narrative coincidences in The Last of Us Part Two, and I couldn't help but notice that they were all front-loaded in the opening hour or two of The Last of Us Part Two. I threw out a potential intro that they could have swapped where, for instance, Abby, Owen, and perhaps a few other members of her crew infiltrated Jackson working with the people, being welcomed in, and eventually earning the trust of Joel and Tommy and Ellie until eventually they turned on everybody, killed Joel, and escaped in the middle of the night while the game then carries out just like it would have otherwise. It could have been really interesting because Abby and Ellie could have even formed a friendship or at least some sort of sympathetic position towards each other, which would have made the betrayal all the worse. I mean, as of right now, Tommy and Joel are very welcoming to this group. They even invite them back to Jackson to restock on supplies before leaving, right before you know, the the thing happens. So we know that Tommy and Joel are welcoming. They would have brought this group in at least for a little bit. Perhaps if they came in, they pretended to be wandering survivors simply in need of assistance and a new fresh start. Perhaps then they go and they work at Jackson for a few weeks or maybe even just a couple of days before turning and killing Joel and escaping. At the very least then, you don't have to rely on a bunch of coincidences, but I do understand that it might have been bad for patients. And especially considering the leaks that happened towards the game's release, it seems as though it was probably for the best, because once the game was spoiled, we all knew that Abby was going to kill Joel, so that would have completely negated the opening sequence where Abby and Ellie are starting to bond, or perhaps at least 
tolerating each other. I've heard from various people on Twitter and through email that Naughty Dog was actually considering this as an opening, which is funny because I just let it roll off my dome. I wasn't actually thinking that hard, but apparently this was a seriously considered intro sequence instead of what we got in the end product of The Last of Us Part Two. but they decided to go in this current direction because the other version ran into a lot of pacing issues. In other words, you likely would have needed to spend the first five or six hours of the game in Jackson doing menial chores while getting to know Abby and her crew before being betrayed. It would have completely changed the structure of the rest of the game, so Naughty Dog just decided to expedite the process, have Abby get to Joel within the first two hours of the game, and get the revenge plot moving. I think that's fair, I just think it's a little sloppy considering how many coincidences they rely on to make it happen. After Abby finds the tracks in the snow leading to one of the patrols, we swap back to Ellie who's on patrol with Dina. You ride your horses through a beautifully realized landscape, walking on ice in a rip. It's absolutely beautiful. I mean, again, how Naughty Dog achieves these graphical features, I, I don't know. It really makes it look like every other development studio isn't even trying. There's a lot of character building in this sequence as you go on your patrol. There's some light flirting. Clearly Dina likes Ellie and Ellie likes Dina and the tension starts to rise here. Again, there's a lot of dread. Things are going too well and the world of The Last of Us as we know is very cutthroat. Sometimes Literally. The fact that everybody's happy, that they are so carefree that they're even flirting with each other, it's unsettling because we know that something bad has to happen soon. But you continue exploring. You go to an outpost, explore some abandoned houses, and at one point Ellie even says that she's going to be inviting Joel over for a movie later that night. This will be very important at the end of the game, so make sure you remember this. Ellie on this day, was planning on having Joel over for a movie that night. It seems like a small point, especially considering that Ellie and Joel have this deep connection with each other. She lives right behind him, even still in the grandmother's suite, and it makes sense that perhaps they would try to fill in empty time watching movies and spending time together. But again, at the end of the game, we're going to find out a lot more. And this very statement by Ellie, something that happens as an optional moment while you're exploring an abandoned house, this is going to be very important. Ellie and Dina come up on a supermarket that's infested. You clear it out, gives you the chance to explore some stealth options and combat. And it's a good thing that this is a really well done portion of the game because this stealth and the crafting that goes along with it is going to be the bread and butter of the game. Especially if you're playing on higher difficulties, you're gonna need to get acclimated to these mechanics as soon as possible. You're also given a quick introduction to clickers as well. And these guys work almost identically to how they did in the first game. I don't really feel the need to explain a lot as to how these sequences work because if you've played the first game you're gonna know how this goes. It's gonna be a hot minute before we're thrown anything that's markedly different. I will say that in the first game it always bugged me that clickers are obviously able to navigate their environments by use of clicking sounds that use echolocation to map out their environment. However, they never were able to hear characters talking to each other or you reloading your weapon or moving your backpack on and off. That is mostly true again in this game, except only on the lower levels. 
in my testing, I actually found that on New Game Plus, on Survivor difficulty, the clickers can actually hear this as well. If you open your backpack to swap weapons, they notice and they'll come running. This was a game changer in terms of immersion. Seriously, I've never played a game where I was so attentive to everything that I was doing that I was scared to even open up the inventory because I knew that it was going to create a small amount of sound that could attract clickers, which could mean that I die and have to reload. Granted, to some people I'm sure that sounds absolutely terrible, which is why there are difficulty settings to begin with, but if you want to be totally immersed in this game, I recommend you play it on the hardest possible difficulty. It really does change everything. Another thing to note in this supermarket sequence is that Ellie is wearing a mask when she encounters spores now. If you played the first game, this is going to be kind of weird, because obviously Ellie is immune to the virus, or so we thought. Why does she need to wear a mask? In the trailers we saw before the game's launch, a lot of people thought that this would mean that Ellie was no longer immune, or perhaps she was not as immune as she once was. So perhaps if she inhaled spores, it would make her very, very sick, but she would eventually pull through it. However, the explanation is far simpler. Joel and Ellie obviously know that Ellie is immune, but nobody else can know that. If people were to find out that Ellie's immune, the same crap with the fireflies would happen all over again. Now this seems to be much more Joel's wish than it is Ellie's. After all, Ellie was totally prepared and fine with giving her life to save humanity in the form of a vaccine. And this would of course make sense because Joel wanted to make sure nobody else would come to Ellie to try and capitalize on her gift. Because if they did, it would mean that he would lose her. But the fact that Ellie is still using the mask even though she doesn't need to, I think serves as proof positive that she still cares about what he thinks and she's yet to fully separate and become her own person. But this isn't something that's explained or really justified at this point in the game, but we will see an actual conversation between Ellie and Joel later on that explains all of this. You fight through a bunch of zombies and clickers and eventually find your way up to the top of the supermarket where you jump down out to the front. Ellie and Dina's entire goal throughout exploring this supermarket was to clear it of infected, and they've done just that. Honestly, it's not a bad way of forcing the player to kill zombies in order to get experience with the combat system and become more comfortable with it. A lot of people are going to simply try to stealth around them in most instances, especially later in the game when resources become very scarce. But if the character's mission is to wipe out all infected in an area to protect Jackson, the city, you all of a sudden don't have to worry about players doing that because they're going to be justified narratively in killing absolutely everything. After all, they can't leave the area unless they've completely wiped all of the infected within that area. Once you get out of the supermarket, the blizzard starts to come in full force. So Ellie and Dina race through the snow and end up at a library that Dina knew about. It's the previous abode of somebody named Eugene, who by my calculations using the logbook in the first outpost, likely died of a stroke late in the previous year, just a few months before this game starts. What we know about him is that he was a firefly who served with Tommy, and he was also an electronics geek who was a total hippie. In other words, he loved weed. After being introduced to the workbench, which has to be the most awesome and kick-ass weapon customization system I've ever seen in a game, you head down to the basement where you find Eugene's true passion. Now, when I first saw all of this, I had to ask the question, was he actually, like, selling this stuff? 
Was he trading it? I don't know. Maybe there's notes that I missed that explained what he was doing with all of this pot. I don't know. Let me know if there is something. There probably is, and I just didn't find it. But it seems as though it's a huge potential opportunity for Jackson in terms of trade if they had all of this marijuana to offer to transients coming in and out. I mean, it would be pretty funny if Jackson, this thriving city in the apocalypse, if their entire economy was based off of selling weed. I think it would be hilarious and kind of cool that in this world, this one thing, this plant has brought everybody together. I mean, yeah, I live in Colorado. Maybe that's why I'm partial to that argument. I mean, I don't smoke it or, or like I don't I don't smoke, but still like you live in Colorado. Everyone talks about pot. It's just what you do. What was I talking about? Oh yeah, Dina and Ellie smoke a blunt. They share in some high school musical style discussion about their kiss from the night before. And then they share another one and then a few other ones. And eventually they're overcome and they begin making out as we cut to Abby once again. She's running from all sorts of hordes. She's making a lot of noise and they are definitely hearing it. This increases the tension a lot after the calm of the previous scene. And this type of pacing is gonna happen often. Honestly, I love it. It's a very common Naughty Dog tactic. They work you up and then they contrast it with something that's very calm that lowers your heart rate only to whack you over the head again and then luring you back into a sense of calm. The best example would be in the opening of the original game. Everything's calm and relaxed and then the world starts to fall apart and everything's terrible and then your daughter dies and then you cut forward to Joel sleeping on a mattress 20 years later and having a very calm, comparatively, conversation with Tess. And prepare your butts, because this is going to happen on a regular basis throughout all of the sequel. And thankfully, the predictability of this doesn't actually negatively affect the efficacy of this mechanism. It still works pretty well. Now, as you run as Abby through all of these hordes, you eventually reach a chain link fence. You squeeze through it, and a bunch of zombies grab onto you, start ripping your hat off, and doing all sorts of gross stuff. And then one breaks through, and this happens. Now they haven't been introduced yet, but as of right now, Abby's just glad to be alive. As far as she knows, Joel is just some random guy, as is Tommy, and they just happen to be in the right place at the right time to save her. Again, a coincidence. This one's a little harder to justify and explain, because they have no reason to be out at this dead-end area of a building they've likely been in before. All of you escape together to a ski lodge at the top of the mountain. You hop on some horses, and after a brief introduction wherein Abby learns who she's with, she recommends that they wait out the storm in a mansion that she and her friends have been staying in. Joel and Tommy agree to go without any significant hesitance beyond the initial belief that they could survive in the lodge. Once again, it's another coincidence. Joel and Tommy aren't this naive, or at the very least they shouldn't be, even when pushed in these extreme conditions. What I mean is I understand that there's a blizzard raging, and I understand that that would push them into choices that they wouldn't otherwise make should the weather be fine and dandy. But Joel and Tommy aren't stupid, and they know not to trust strangers, even a stranger that looks as innocent as 
uh, hulked out heroin. And they definitely should know that they shouldn't trust a group of strangers that are living out of a mansion that's on their patrol route. She says they've been staying there for a few days, that they have weapons, food, and all sorts of things that could help Joel and Tommy. While it's nice that she's offering to help them in this way, it should also raise a lot of red flags that she's willing to help them, first of all, and also that this giant group of people is present so close to Jackson without their knowledge. But nonetheless, Joel and Tommy agree to go. Once you arrive at the cabin, Joel, Tommy, and Abby dismount and settle into the house. Abby is clearly distressed while Tommy and Joel are none the wiser. Again, the dread is building. Something is very wrong. Everyone moves into the nearby basement room and Tommy and Joel introduce themselves. Again, this might be construed as out of character that they would use their real names to a bunch of strangers, but in my opinion, it's not actually a stretch because Tommy and Joel have no reason to believe that their first names could give them away or that one of them is being hunted for that matter. Yes, they've all done a lot of really messed up stuff, but knowing somebody's first name and hunting them down across the country, that seems like a bit of a stretch, but here we are. Point is, I don't think that it's unrealistic that Joel and Tommy use their real names when introducing themselves to a group that seemingly is helping them out. And I have to say, it's pretty impressive at how slow and steady the dread is building throughout this entire introductory sequence, the prologue of the game. And then at this very moment when Joel says his name and everybody's faces turn from very friendly to cold and evil, it's a moment that I'm not sure I'll ever forget. The second Joel says his name, the room shifts. You could hear a pin drop. Instead of being friendly, they all look at him as though they're hyenas looking at their next meal. And it's important to note that this kindness that we feel before Joel introduces himself is very important, and it will come up again later, I promise you. Now Joel picks up on this shift, and this plays out. Appreciate it. I'm Mel, by the way. Tommy. This is my brother. Joe. Don't act like you heard of us or something. Because they have. Laura? All clear? He's out. Put him against the wall. Tommy! Get off me! Get off me! Puta madre! Do 
fucking move. God damn it! Clear out. We cut back to Ellie closing in on the cabin. Now right before Joel and Tommy pushed up to the cabin with Abby, we saw Jesse come across Abby and Dina in the basement of Eugene's library in a compromised position. He tells them that Joel and Tommy are missing and nobody has seen them since the storm came in. Ellie becomes panicked and races off to help find them. It's important to note also that Ellie stressed that they should all split up to try and cover as much ground as possible. Some people have said that this itself is a coincidence or a bit of a stretch that they wouldn't actually do this. But again, think about it from her perspective. I don't think it's a stretch because as far as Ellie is concerned, it's very possible that Joel and Tommy simply had to bunker down somewhere because of the blizzard and were caught there by surprise. It's not to say that she expected Joel to be hunted by some random chick from Seattle. But regardless, everybody breaks off looking for Joel and Tommy. After Abby starts her attack on Joel, we cut to Ellie closing in on the cabin. They give a bit of a fake out here by dropping some ammo right as you enter the cabin, which makes the player think that you're about to fight. I actually really like it when games do this, do this little fake out so you're prepped for a fight and then it's taken away from you, but I know that's just me. Of course, this isn't the case because the second that we enter the basement, this happens. Pin it down! Get off me! Get her hand! Get the fuck off me! You got her! Look, you got her! Okay? You're gonna fucking die! What's going on? Let him go. Who is that? Let him she go! Snuck in. Why aren't you posted up outside? We didn't think anyone was gonna show up. What the hell did you expect? We gotta get out of here before the whole town's on top of us. You're done. You want what I want, right? End it. Now. Joel, get up. Joel, fucking get up. Please stop. Please don't shoot. Joel, please get up. No! No!
There's some heated discussion between the members of Abby's party as to what to do with Ellie. It's all very muffled and you can't understand any of it, though we will get to see this from another perspective later. Eventually, they just knock her out, and Ellie wakes up after some time to Dina and Jesse, rescuing them. At this point, it's not clear if Tommy survived, but it's clear that Joel did not. You know what? This is as good a time as any to address the elephant in the room dead on the floor. I had the game spoiled for me, so I knew that Joel was going to die at some point. And to be honest, many of us had a feeling as though Joel was going to die at some point in the game years ago because it only made sense. One of the stereotypes of a sequel is that they're going to kill off one of the major characters from the first iteration of whatever is in question. Whether it's a movie, a novel, a podcast, or a video game, time and time again we've seen this trope played out. And it's become a trope because this actually works pretty well. You grow the character and the audience falls in love with them over the course of the first story. Then with this foundation laid, you pull the rug out from everybody and smack them over the head with a two by four of emotion. Or maybe in this case, a golf club of emotion. Eh, maybe that's too soon. I don't care. Moving on. Even with this presumption having been established by many people before this game was launched, Naughty Dog seems to have actively tried to dissuade fans from this presupposition by way of their pre-launch trailers. Now this actually got a lot of people pretty upset when they played through the entirety of The Last of Us Part 2. There are multiple events that were shown in the trailers that aren't actually indicative of what the game has to offer. The clearest example would be this one, where Ellie is fighting through a bunch of WLF and then has a hand put over her mouth and when she turns around she sees that it's Joel telling her that he's not going to let her do this by herself. Now, I'm not going to respond in the same way that a lot of people on Twitter responded, where they demanded their money back due to false advertising. I don't think that's fair, especially because you paid $60 and have gotten a lot of gameplay out of it before. You know, I don't even need to explain my reasoning. I just think that's stupid. What I will say, however, was that this was very confusing, at least for me, the first time I played through the game. Having watched all of the trailers multiple times, I knew that Joel made an appearance later on in the game because Ellie responds to him but that never happens in the actual game. So I kept asking myself whether or not there was going to be some sort of dream sequence where she plays back through the same level again, but this time Joel is at the end of the line instead, and then that scene plays out. Of course, I don't have to tell you that never happens. This was simply a way to divert the attention from the fans away from what was actually going to happen. And Naughty Dog does have a history of doing this type of thing, which is part of the reason I can't fault them completely, because usually it's for a good reason. The most obvious example would be with the original Last of Us, when they said that you would only be playing as Joel throughout the entirety of the game. Of course, this isn't true. And it made it so when you actually got your hands on Ellie, that sounded weird when I said it out loud. <laughs> it made it so when you started playing as Ellie, the entire sequence was much more surreal because you didn't expect at all to have this opportunity. Another example would be with this very game, The Last of Us Part Two, when they said that you would only be playing as Ellie throughout the entirety of the campaign, something which was obviously not true. The problem with these sort of white lies to better the gameplay experience for the player is that they only work if people don't know any better. 
And with the original game, as far as I'm aware, most people believed that you would only play as Joel throughout the entirety of the game, and it made it so when they got their hands on the controller playing as Ellie, it was much more interesting because they didn't expect it at all. But with The Last of Us Part Two and all of the leaks that followed, people saw this coming from a mile away, and it lost a lot of its punch. I've actually spent a lot of time thinking what this game would be like if I had no expectations and nothing spoiled for me. I think the experience would have been much different, and I'm not sure how that would have changed my perspective. Nonetheless, if you happen to be one of the few lucky people who got to play the entire game without having anything spoiled for you, I want to hear your thoughts down in the comment section below or in a tweet. Send it to me, I'm really interested in hearing what your perspective is on all of this. But as for Joel's death itself, I have no problem with it. Joel's actions throughout the course of the first game were quite reckless, and he screwed over a lot of people and killed a lot of people while he was at it. I've said before, and I'll say it again, I don't think Joel is a hero. If anything, he's an anti-hero if you look at his actions in a vacuum. You can always say that life and morality is much more complicated than looking at it purely in a vacuum, but I think it still stands to say that Joel is not a pillar of morality to which we should all look and pray for guidance. I think rather he's a damaged, broken, sad, and amoral character who's looking to do what he needs to do to survive and protect those he cares about. That's something that I think is in a way admirable in and of itself, but I don't think that that makes you a hero, quote unquote, in the same way that you could compare a character such as Aloy, who is actively trying to do the moral thing in any instance that she comes across. Furthermore, from a gameplay perspective, we got our game with Joel. We know him, we've experienced him and his perspectives. I think it was time for something new, and if we had played through the entire game as Joel, or half and half between Joel and Ellie, I think it would have lost a lot of its punch. Now, Joel's death didn't come as a surprise to me or probably anyone, especially once you walk through that door in the cabin. That being said, it's still pretty horrible having to watch him get his head crammed in with a golf club. It's pretty haunting, but that's by design. Naughty Dog needed the player to be just as haunted by this event as Ellie is because then they feel emotionally equivalent, especially in their hatred towards Abby, which is one of the major elements that they need to establish early on. You, the player, need to hate this girl with every fiber of your being, just like Ellie hates her with every fiber of her being, so that later, when they try to flip perspectives and flip the table on you, they can do that effectively. If you're apathetic towards Abby, and then you go through the entirety of the game trying to pursue revenge, you're not going to be motivated at all. It's going to be pretty uninteresting because the entire premise of the game and the story is a moot point. But if you hate Abby just as much as Ellie hates her and wants to see her die, you'll be motivated to get through the first half of the game. And then, Naughty Dog has you set up for the final act. Now after this, we enter the end of the prologue. Yes, we are an hour into this video, and we're just getting out of the prologue. Ellie and Tommy discuss their next steps. Tommy talked to Maria, and she's not going to let him go or do anything, and he's not allowed to have any sort of spare men 
He has to keep them all in Jackson. She thinks that they should just move on, accept that what happened was terrible, and go on with their lives. As usual, Maria seems to be the one voice of reason. Tommy and Ellie, however, are understandably upset. Tommy lost his brother in a terrible way, and Ellie also lost her father figure in a terrible way. They still aren't certain why this happened or what Joel did that made them seek his death out so fervently. Tommy happened to see some patches on their coats that read WLF, and because of his previous history with the Fireflies, he knows that that would be the Washington Liberation Front, which is a group that's in Washington. <laughs> go figure. And that's what allows Ellie to know where she needs to go next. It's a long stretch that they would have returned to Seattle and that they would still be there and that they would be findable, but when you're motivated this strongly, you're willing to go and try anything. In the same way that Abby was so desperate to go and get revenge against Joel, Ellie now is motivated to go to her turf and get revenge against her. Now, Tommy wants to go to Seattle by himself and hunt Abby down and get revenge. Maria, of course, is not going to let him do that, but Tommy's main objective is to prevent Ellie from going. He promised Joel that he would take care of Ellie no matter what, and in this case, he knows that if Ellie goes to Seattle, her chances of survival aren't very high. So he'd rather go take on those chances himself and spare Ellie while trying to get revenge for the sake of the both of them. Ellie demands that they either go together or that Tommy allow Ellie to go with Dina and some other people with some troops from the camp to get revenge herself. Tommy, of course, rejects this idea and asks for more time, just a day or so, so that he can try and work something out. In this case, he's just buying time. He's made up his mind as to what he's going to do. We then see Ellie at Joel's gravesite. It's a really touching moment, and it reaffirms that Joel is actually gone. I don't know about you guys, but I had this sort of surreal feeling when I played through this game the first time. I kept saying to myself, Joel can't actually be dead. For one, because we saw that trailer where Joel was featured later on in the game in Seattle. And for two, because Joel is Joel. You can't just kill off Joel that suddenly. There has to be more to it. But there isn't. He's dead. This is his grave. And it's sad. Ellie then visits Joel's house with Dina, picks up his watch from the first game. It's still broken. And also takes his revolver, which he'll be using throughout the rest of the game. It's actually pretty cool that this is where she gets it. We do this, though, only after exploring his house a little bit. And there's a lot of incredible detail here and it really encapsulates joel's character he's very music heavy and organized he's neat and tidy and his house is also painfully empty there's a lot of big empty rooms and maybe i'm just reading too much into it but i couldn't help but feel as though there was a lot of space where ellie could have stayed if she had wanted to like I said earlier, there was no reason other than the emotional turmoil between the two for Ellie to go and live in the grandmother's suite out back. But truly, everything from the paintings on the walls, which we'll come back to later, I promise, to Joel's bed still being a little rough and that there's a space magazine and books by his bed that he was reading because he's interested in space. Like, it's, it's so cute. And it's so touching and it's so painfully sad to know that he's never going to walk through that house ever again. 
After you grab these items, you walk downstairs and realize that Maria is there sitting with Dina. She informs you that Tommy left on his own already and is asking that Ellie be locked up to prevent her from following him. Maria is understandably frustrated, angry, pissed, whatever words you want to associate with it, but more than anything, she's worried. And she knows that if she sends Ellie and Dina off to try and help Tommy, at least he'll stand a better chance. So Maria allows Ellie and Dina to leave Jackson with their horses and some extra supplies so long as they promise to bring back Tommy when they return in one piece. This sets up the dual purpose of your journey and theirs. You're going there to kill Abby, but also to save Tommy, although Tommy probably doesn't need much saving. And you'll realize that once we get to Seattle, there's going to be a third purpose in their journey and motivation to everything that they're doing that's added on top of it. I find it really interesting that they set up these multiple goals because it seems as though it just complicates things, which I actually like. Having a single quest where you're just going to try and kill one person is a little bland. It's a little uninteresting. So to see that we have multiple things we're trying to do all at once is a little refreshing. After this, we jump to the start of the core game itself, Seattle Day 1. And after this, we're done with the prologue and ready to move into the core of the game. But before we do that, I want to discuss our feelings at this point. At this moment in my first run, I felt motivated, yet still pretty dreadful in, again, the purest sense of the word. Dread overwhelmed me. These revenge quests never end well for anybody, and I couldn't help but feel as though Ellie was going to totally screw herself over and end up dead in a ditch somewhere if she tried to do this. But again, I think that's kind of the point. The player should be just as hesitant and doubtful as Ellie is in this pursuit. Sure, Ellie talks a big game and explains how she's going to go and kill Abby without any remorse and she's going to get revenge for this terrible act, but she still shows some slight reservations every once in a while. She knows that this doesn't make a lot of logical sense in the same way that Abby knew that her plan to just go and storm Jackson didn't make a lot of logical sense, but they were going to try and do it because they felt as though it was the right thing to do, and that's what kept them going. It's a tug of war of emotions and motivations, and that conflict is what makes an interesting story. Say what you will about The Last of Us Part Two at this point in the story, but it's interesting and engaging nonetheless. Might not be fun, might not be enjoyable, but it's interesting. At least to me. Maybe you hated it, and if you did, I would love to hear your thoughts down below. But to be perfectly honest, you're probably not still here in this video if you don't find the story of this game at least somewhat interesting. I mean, after all, we just got through the prologue and we are well over an hour into this video. So it's with that newfound motivation to find Abby that we enter the core of the game. And it's good that we have this emotional drive behind us because we're about to enter a very slow sequence of the game. Seriously, there's moments in here where I became actively bored because it was all puzzle solving and platforming. It's just kind of blah. But don't worry, we're gonna get into it. And with that, we move to Seattle day one. Our first day in Seattle starts with the gate. Basically, you're riding through the forest talking with Dina, and you have to try and get into the body of the city. 
Of course, there's a lot of military installations that were put up towards the end of quarantine that have since fallen to pieces, but nonetheless, you have to get through them. There's a few supplies here and there that you can gather, but for the most part, this is a puzzle-solving sequence. We climb some buildings, go up some ladders, enter some codes that we find on some papers, and we push into Seattle. This was probably my least favorite part of the game. We're emotionally motivated. We want to go kick some ass and take some names and then give those names to other people whose asses we've kicked. But instead, we're forced to just slowly solve some basic puzzles, write down some codes, walk to another place, pull open our notebook to look back at what the codes were, and then enter those in manually. It's not that interesting, and it is in direct conflict with what the player wants to be doing at this point. I understand maybe Naughty Dog wanted to slow the pace down after how emotionally distraught you might be after the prologue, but still, I can't help but feel as though there would have been a better way to do this. Maybe some more combat sequences, maybe introducing you to a new type of infected. I'm not sure. Anything I think would have been better than this. We get to downtown, and by my estimation, this is the largest single area of the game. It's very open, and there's about 11 main locations, at least that I found, to explore in this little area. This includes a bank, a synagogue, a courthouse, all very well realized. The bank is cool because it's frozen in time right after a group of people tried to rob it. I loved seeing all of the money strewn throughout the bank and watching Ellie and Dina ponder what they would do with that money if it actually was worth anything in their world. And I gotta say, Naughty Dog is really good at this sort of indirect world building. It makes you question your actual priorities in your current life. If you're motivated purely by money and you have fat stacks sitting next to you as you watch this video, you can't help but feel a little bit strange when you walk into this post-apocalyptic world and the money is absolutely useless. It's those types of little things that get the wheels turning in your mind to start putting yourself in the shoes of the characters in that world that makes Naughty Dog so good at motivating players to continue engaging with the story. My favorite part of this chapter, however, is an optional item interaction in the music store of this section. And basically, if you interact with the guitar here, Ellie will start playing and singing Take On Me to Dina. It's really beautiful and is another calm moment in this already relaxing section. And I really enjoyed it, and I recommend that you also enjoy it because it's not going to last. But while the story elements of this section of the game are pretty impressive, I don't feel as though the expansive areas that you're meant to explore are quite as impressive as I think Naughty Dog was hoping they would be. This whole area is very reminiscent of the opening of The Lost Legacy, Naughty Dog's other, most recent Uncharted game. In The Lost Legacy, you have a huge open expanse to explore, but by explore, they pretty much mean that you move from one location to the other, fight some bad guys, solve a quick little puzzle, and then move to the next area. It's not actually exploring in the same way that you would probably show it in, for instance, The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, where you're actively exploring the map. Maybe my expectations were just out of check, because Naughty Dog did talk these sections up a lot, saying that these were the largest levels they had ever designed in any of their games ever. Which is true, and they're pretty impressive on that front, but in the age of Red Dead Redemption 2, riding a horse through a field really isn't an incredible achievement. 
Now, of course, it's not a competition between Naughty Dog and Rockstar. They're both the prettiest girl in the ball, and you can't have either of them. But I can't help but notice as though the foliage and the horses in Red Dead Redemption 2 looked a lot better two years ago in an open-world game when compared to those in The Last of Us Part 2. Maybe I'm just really picky, or maybe my preferences are askew. Let me know in the comment section below. But I really do feel as though there's a strong difference between these two and it's in Red Dead's favor. Nonetheless, you continue exploring the map and eventually push through the gate that was locked, keeping you in this area. Everything's quiet and you simply ride your horse through the checkpoint, at least until this happens. ULF. Wolves. Whatever. <laughs> We open back up with Ellie tied to a desk in a small elementary school called Eastbrook. This is not really important. What's important is that Ellie is being held hostage, and Dina seems to have escaped. Ellie's about to be executed when Dina comes in and saves the day. Well, at least, almost. You watch as this guy tries to strangle Dina, feeling absolutely helpless. It's actually pretty well done. I found my heart rate increasing quite drastically during this. You eventually use your foot to grab a shard of glass, use it to cut your bindings, and Ellie goes up and kills Dina's attacker, at which point she grabs a letter and picture from his pocket, which will be important in just a little bit. You go through a few combat sequences here that pair you against human enemies. It's a nice change of pace from the infected that you've been dealing with exclusively up to this point, and it forces you to change your approach. For instance, you have to really be careful managing your flashlights. Going up against most infected, you don't have to worry about your flashlight being on or off because they can't see it or don't respond to it. With humans, of course, they do. They're much more visual and much less auditory. They'll tactically flank you and maneuver around you if they need to, though they can be lured with sound into traps very easily. But on survivor difficulty, I will say it can be frustrating if you run out of ammo as your only option in dealing with them in ranged attacks is to throw bottles and rush or just sit and pray that they come around. I understand that it's a post-apocalyptic world and not everything is going to be convenient within it, but nonetheless, it's pretty frustrating. After fighting your way to safety, Ellie looks at the document and the picture that she swiped off of Dina's attacker. It's a nude picture that Leah gave to her boyfriend, Jordan, who's actually the guy that you just killed. And sorry, boys, but there's a blood smear that covers all of the good stuff, so no use in pausing the video. Now, Leah happens to be one of the people that joined Abby on their Kilcation. Another coincidence that leads Ellie to the Channel 13 station to find Leah, who might be able to help them find Abby in turn. Ellie and Dina also hear about this guy, Isaac, in conversations that can be overheard from the WLF members. 
Now, not much is known about this guy, or revealed about him for that matter, for quite a while. But what we do know is that he seemingly runs the WLF and he has a firm grip on power. Everyone does what he says and are scared of him. Naughty Dog games of the past would use this as a setup for the later boss fight with Isaac. If he's mentioned, he'll be a key part of the story later, right? Well, actually wrong. This will happen again with another character later, maybe it's a setup for a sequel or something, but as for Isaac himself and the other lady that's going to be shown off, it actually doesn't come around. All of that said, Ellie and Dina head into the heart of the city to find the Channel 13 station to hunt down Leah to try and, in turn, get more information on Abby. You push through a ton of WLF soldiers and lots of infected as well. You find some tripwire traps set up that reminded me of Bill from the first game, but here they don't seem to serve any purpose other than to slow down gameplay and exploration. And personally, I just didn't find these tripwire bombs fun. They're just annoying. It's good to shake up the monotony of gameplay every once in a while with something new and different, such as these tripwire mines, but in this case, these things don't really come up again for the rest of the game. They're just a one-off frustration that doesn't actually drive you into any sort of new habitual behavior. In other words, in most games when they introduce you to a new gameplay element, it's because it's going to be used throughout the rest of the game, which is why you need to be taught how to deal with it. But in this case, they're used very sparingly, and in most cases, they're entirely avoidable. But granted, this is probably just a pet peeve on my end. So you come up on the station after finding the best collectible in the game, and you begin exploring it. You find the remnants of a scar ceremony of some sort. There's a bunch of bodies that are strung up everywhere and that have been disemboweled. Now, it's not clear exactly when this happened, but it seems relatively recent. Now, if you're anything like me, you would have immediately realized that Leah is probably not going to be in any sort of condition to help you find Abby, especially after all of this scar stuff. If she's even still in the station, she's probably dead. And sure enough, you find Leah at the top of the station in an office, shot dead with a bunch of arrows sticking out of her. But the coincidences come in clutch and save the day, because Ellie decides to open up Leah's duffel bag underneath her cot, which just happens to have pictures of all of the team members that went to Jackson and killed Joel. Apparently, they basically vlogged the whole thing, which is why I called it a killcation earlier. This is probably, and to be perfectly honest, I think it is the most egregious example of coincidences driving this story. They needed Ellie to be reminded and have some sort of firm idea of what these people looked like and what their names were so that she could ask other people who they were and where they were. They couldn't come up with any reasonable way of her coming up with this information herself, so instead they had to have her stumble onto it by finding a bag that happened to be left behind that happened to have all of these pictures placed in it by some lady that was on a work assignment. And that's the thing, she wasn't even really supposed to be at this TV station for very long, so I don't understand why she would have brought all of these pictures very precious to her. I, I just, I don't understand. But I'll stop beating the dead horse there. Right as you find the photos, WLF members show up and, assuming that you're a Scar, push through the entire building to find Ellie and Dina. You fight them and escape through the basement, which leads to the underground tunnel system for the subway. 
This encounter seems really intimidating at first, but rest assured it's actually pretty easy to spam, as you can see in this instance. If you know how to use a good Molotov cocktail, you can work wonders. Once you're in the subway system, you find some new zombies known as shamblers, which eject a sort of acidic cloud when aggroed. On normal difficulty, I will actually say that these things are disappointingly easy to kill. Like, they do not meet the expectation at all. Their bite is nowhere near as bad as their bark. But on Survivor New Game Plus, these things can eat my entire ass. And maybe it was just me that had an easy time with these shamblers, or perhaps just expected way more for them. Because there are some signs that Naughty Dog expected players to have more trouble with these guys. I mean, look at how Dina locks this door. I thought this was kind of weird in my first run through because there was nothing left to keep from getting through. All of the zombies were dead. I killed them all and there was nothing left in that room to prevent from escaping. But in my new game plus run, I snuck through this section leaving many or even most of those infected alive. In that case, locking this door made a lot more sense. But on my first run on a normal difficulty with all of the zombies dead, it really seemed strange that Dina wanted to lock this door down. I mean, I guess it can't hurt, but still it just seemed odd. This is a simple, but I think it's an effective example of how Naughty Dog likely expected more players to stealth their way through these sections. Now Ellie and Dina continue to push through these tunnels, and it's actually a pretty cool sequence going through these things again when remembering the first game. Because of course in the first game, Ellie couldn't even swim, and Joel had to use all sorts of floating platforms to get her from one area to the next. In this case, Ellie is much more capable, and if anything, it's Dina who requires a little more babying. But after exploring a few of these tunnels and climbing through some train cars, one of them collapses, Ellie takes a tumble as they're jumped by a bunch of infected, and Ellie's mask actually cracks, leaving her exposed to the spores. Dina understandably starts to freak out, thinking that Ellie is going to die. Ellie says she's fine as they race to the street level, and insists that Dina does not take off her mask to share it between the two of them. You fight your way all the way up to the street level, lock the door behind you, look across the street and see an old theater. You decide to take refuge there, and thankfully it's fairly well guarded, defensible, and the doors do lock from the inside. Ellie and Dina break in, take refuge, and start to rest. Dina is understandably upset because she thinks that Ellie is going to die. After all, she just saw her inhale spores, and for any other human being that she knows, that would be an instant death sentence. But instead, Ellie seems fine. There's no problem. And it's at this point that Ellie again explains how she's actually immune. She previously explained this to Dina back when they were in Eugene's basement weed emporium. However, it seemed back then that Dina did not believe her, thought that she was pulling her leg, and just thought it was a cruel joke. But now, Dina understands that this might actually be true, although I will say that Dina never really seems to go any further with this. Her love interest is immune from the fungus that is infecting all of life on the planet, and she doesn't seem that interested in it. Really, I'm not sure if she brings it up ever again throughout the entire game, even in the later cutscenes and sequences. It's just a little strange. I understand there's a lot to get through during the course of this story, and perhaps there were scenes that had been written where they discuss it further, but 
It was eventually cut. I'm not sure, but all I know is that it seems strange that Dina doesn't engage with Ellie further on this matter. While also in the theater, Dina explains that she thinks that she's pregnant. You see, she dated Jesse, broke up with him a week before Ellie and Dina's kiss, and that would mean that the baby is Jesse's. This, of course, complicates the relationship between all of them. Now, personally, this game is no surprise at all to me. After all of the signaling that they did for the last three or so hours of gameplay, and if you were reading Ellie's journal at all, you'll know this well ahead of Ellie. Dina was puking a lot, saying that she wasn't feeling well, saying that she was tired, blaming a lot of things on the gore around her but in reality it was morning sickness. Furthermore, having heard Abby and Owen discuss Mel, Owen's other love interest, and her pregnancy, it seemed like a slam dunk that Naughty Dog was going to have somebody in Ellie's friend circle become pregnant so that they could draw a further parallel later. Sure enough, that's exactly what they did. Regardless, Ellie breaks away allowing Dina to sleep. You get some electricity running after the awkward conversation and stumble upon a radio in a technician's closet. It's broken, Ellie becomes frustrated and whacks it in frustration, which is how she actually finds the keys that led her into the deeper areas of the theater. I don't know why the keys were under the radio, it's all mighty convenient that she hit the radio in frustration in the first place, because if she didn't, she wouldn't have found the keys, but whatever, you get the point. I've been complaining about coincidences this whole video, so you get the point. I'll just, I'll move on. You find a guitar in the back of the theater and play the same song that we saw Joel play for Ellie in the flashback wherein he was teaching Ellie how to play. She plays the first few bars and then we cut to a flashback. Probably my favorite flashback of the entire game. It's Joel and Ellie. It seems to be Ellie's birthday and Joel is taking her to find her birthday gift. There's not much to say about this sequence other than that it's very touching and sweet. Joel found this museum that had a giant dinosaur statue in it because he knew that Ellie dreamed of seeing dinosaurs. She also wants to go to space. One of her dreams is to go to space. And he takes her to the astronaut exhibit wherein she can put on a helmet and then climb into the actual capsule. Joel hops in too, gives her a headset, and allows her to zone out while imagining herself going into space and taking off. This sequence is actually just like the arcade one in Left Behind, the DLC from the first game, wherein Ellie and Riley were imagining playing this video game. Of course they couldn't play it, it was long since broken, but Riley had Ellie close her eyes and imagine everything while she described it. You better believe it's no coincidence that these two events are so similar. It's a super simple scene, but it just serves to further establish that Joel and Ellie had a deep relationship and care for each other. Also, that their relationship is pretty complicated. Because at the very end of this scene, you come across a writing on the wall. And needless to say, it's something that Joel and Ellie don't want to discuss. So they just leave. And after that, we jump to Seattle day two. Starting out our second day in Seattle, Ellie wakes up in the theater and finds Dina in the radio room vomiting, a not-so-subtle reminder of the revelation that we saw before the flashback. 
She's been listening to the radio deciphering the WLF's communications to figure out where members of Joel's assassination party might be. Dina and Ellie overhear a WLF broadcast together that there's a lone gunman in Zone 14. They guess that this is a neighborhood called Hillcrest, and Ellie heads out to investigate. They think that this could be Tommy because, well, who else could it be? Sorry for the bell, I have a kitten on my lap and she's making noise. <laughs> but yeah, shocker, of, of course it's not Tommy. Playing as Ellie, you push through a few different areas fighting all sorts of wolves and looting lots of buildings. Not much happens for around 30 minutes of exploring until all of the WLF seems to descend at the same spot, a smoke signal that Ellie also follows. The level design here is really fantastic. This use of a visual objective in the distance that you can follow as you go through the level, it's really well done and it's something Naughty Dog has been doing for a long time and that they really have perfected. Now this level really crescendos in difficulty, especially on harder difficulty settings where difficulty spikes are far more severe. Now the thing about this is that you'll get caught with no ammo in this level if you're not careful and use it all too early, so you have to be very careful to preserve it. But the problem is, on your first run through, you're not going to know that you're going to run out of ammo so quickly. You couldn't have known. So, in turn, you're always careful and never want to use any of your ammo whatsoever. But when that's the case, you're always careful, which also means that you never are, because your behavior isn't changing in any way. You're just refusing to use ammo, so you're effectively playing through the game as a melee game. It's this gameplay hesitance that I've noticed in a lot of horror video games especially, where ammo is very limited. It's strange to me, because I don't think it actually reflects a better gameplay experience because it just ends up with the player refusing to use multiple mechanics because they're scared that if they do use them, they're going to run out of ammo and be unable to use them later on. But I understand that getting rid of this system could also be like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But regardless, Ellie pushes to the smokestack, killing and evading all sorts of WLF members while she goes. You eventually unlock the bow and arrow here, which is actually probably my favorite weapon of the whole game. It's silent, you can recollect a lot of the ammo depending on where you hit the enemy and on what difficulty you're playing, and all around I, I just like it, I find it really satisfying. She reaches the location of the smokestack and then this happens. What the hell are you doing here? I think I'd let you do this on your own. This is really weird to me because as far as I knew, this was going to be Joel when Ellie turned around, and I was really confused when I saw that we were getting to that point where the trailer happened, and I knew that Joel was dead. How could he possibly show up and save the day? But sure enough, it ends up being Jesse. It's just strange to me that they chose to do this fake-out where we thought that it was going to be Joel here because that's what the trailer showed, and then it ends up being Jesse. It's just... It's weird. It's weird to me. I don't know what else to say. If you have more information on this, let me know in the comment section below. I just, it's weird. I don't know what to make of it. 
Nonetheless, Ellie and Jesse manage to escape by way of a stolen car that they drive into a river in a pretty impressive sequence that also leaked pre-launch. It's a super fluid sequence, and no, I'm not just saying that because they end up in a river. I think it's very well polished, and it looks incredible to boot. But then again, I mean, this is a Naughty Dog game. I wouldn't expect anything else. You bring Jesse back to Dina, and there's a ton of tension here. Ellie, of course, leaves because she feels very awkward. After all, Ellie's girlfriend's baby daddy just showed up. I don't blame her for wanting to leave. As Ellie walks away, we jump into another flashback, and this one's actually pretty simple. Ellie and Joel are exploring a hotel while on their way to a music store after Ellie receives a lesson on sniping from Tommy. And this may seem really random, especially because sniping will not be a major mechanic for Ellie throughout the entire game, but there actually is a reason for them showing the player this sniping tutorial. I'll get to that more in a little bit, though. After you finish your sniping tutorial with Tommy, you ride back down the hill and find Joel sitting there and you prepare to go out with him to find some guitar strings at a music store. Now, a fun little detail is that this actually was originally an entirely different plot. Originally, after Ellie finished her sniping tutorial with Tommy, she and Joel were going to go and say hi to Joel's girlfriend who lived just a little ways down the road. They were going to ride up, find Joel's girlfriend having been freshly bitten, and they were going to be forced to make a difficult choice. While they all negotiated back and forth what they should do about it, they send Ellie outside to grab some fresh water from the stream. Once Ellie walks outside, she hears a gunshot, and then Joel walks out, and they know that something happened. They know that... She's gone, and either Joel put her out of her misery at her request, or she put herself out of her own misery because she knew that she didn't want Joel to have to do it for her because they knew how this was going to end. Regardless, it would have been a very touching moment and interesting thing to see Joel and Ellie experience together. Joel experiencing another loss and using Ellie to help him get through it. But... Apparently, according to the press release and comments by Neil Druckmann and all of his writing staff, this scene was cut in favor of this new scene where they go and explore a hotel cutting through to a music store because they felt as though it was too much of a diversion from the priorities of the story. In other words, this is a game about Ellie. It's not a game about Joel. And if they had this scene focused on Joel, it would start to feel much more like a Joel and Ellie game, but a Joel and Ellie game where you're only playing as Ellie. But make of that what you will. You cut through the resort, clearing out a ton of infected, and it actually feels a lot like the first game. It's pretty nice. As they push through the resort, Joel insists that Ellie wear her mask, even though she's immune to the spores. She asks why she would need to do this. After all, it's just them exploring the hotel. And he says because if somebody saw her, they would have a lot of questions, understandably. So it's better to be safe than sorry. She should just wear it. And this explains why she was wearing it in all of the other sequences, like we talked about at the beginning. She wore the mask at Joel's insistence because she didn't want to risk anybody finding out because it would cause too much trouble or it just wasn't worth the headache of explaining everything that went down with the fireflies even if Joel was going to stick to his original story of what happened. 
But after pushing through a ton of infected, fighting a mini boss fight with Joel, again, very reminiscent of the first game, touching and tugging on all of my heartstrings, they end up finding a couple that left Jackson a few months before, which spurs a conversation about what happened at the hospital. Unfortunately, Joel continues to lie. Why did you pull me out of there while I was still unconscious? Because I let them run their tests. And when I saw that they were useless, I got us out of there. How do you know they were useless? Maybe if you, you just uh, would have given them more time, they could have figured something uh, out. There was no cure. There's nothing that could help these people or anybody else. I know you wish things were different. I wish things were different. But they ain't. We then cut to Ellie patching up a cut in the theater. Dina helps her, and they try to resolve some of the awkward tension that they just experienced after Jesse's arrival. Dina reveals that she's figured out using the radio that Nora, one of the Joel squad, is stationed at the hospital and may know where Abby is. Ellie takes off immediately and heads for that hospital. And this is actually a pretty quiet chapter of the game, because Ellie is of course by herself. There's no one to bounce anything off of. She's just alone. And they're actually able to throw a couple curveballs at the player as a result of this, which I actually really, really enjoyed. The best example would probably be when Ellie walks up to a workbench, which is where you do all of your maintenance on all of your weapons, adding upgrades, changing things out using the scrap that you find in the world, at which point she's jumped. I thought this was super cool when I saw it. I was like, oh shoot, I'm not even safe in the menus now? I, I, I understand this probably pissed some people off and freaked them out, because if anything in video games, menus are sacred. You should be safe in a menu, but in this case you're not, and I, I just thought it was awesome. Now let's also take this chance to discuss crafting a little bit. The crafting system is pretty much identical to the first game, except there's a few new items like pipe bombs. Most character upgrades will only get about halfway through their upgrade tree, if you want to call it that, throughout most runs. New Game Plus lets you max level Ellie and Abby by the time you're done playing each of their respective halves of the game, which does make you feel like a superhero. Now on higher difficulties, these crafting items are stupid scarce. Really, they're pretty hard to find, and they don't tend to generate or populate in the world itself unless you are really struggling later in the game. But these dynamic placement systems that Naughty Dog uses in these Last of Us games works pretty well and I don't have a lot of complaints about them except for healing items. These quick snacks and things that refill your health are far too plentiful on high difficulties, at least in my mind. It makes the game too easy even though the combat is remarkably hard on, for instance, Survivor. 
Part of the reason this is a problem in my mind is because Molotovs are crafted using the same materials. So effectively, the player is always faced with a choice between crafting a health kit and a Molotov cocktail. Seems like a stupid delineation to draw, but I think it's important. You see, health kits just represent a major mistake on the part of the player. If you make a major mistake, you're probably going to die on a higher difficulty, so it's not worth continuing. You're usually just going to reload the save and continue on with all of the ammo you had before you made that big mistake. This means that in my New Game Plus run on Survivor, I almost never crafted any healing kits at all, because Molotovs were far more useful, and if I ever got to the point where my health was really, really low, I would have just restarted from the previous save and not made that same mistake that landed me in that tough spot. The other piece to all of this looting and crafting crap is that looting materials does make it feel as though you're exploring the levels, and it motivates the player to explore the levels in most instances, but the developers used a balanced dynamic generation system that makes it so if you are preparing to go up against a boss fight, for instance, more ammo will generate as you get closer to that boss to bring you up to the recommended level that they set for that boss fight encounter. Now, of course, nothing is forcing you to pick up these items, but the game will generate them more frequently and present them to you more obviously if it calculates that you are in need of them. On higher difficulties, it calculates you as needing less of them, but nonetheless, it calculates you as needing these items, which means that you don't actually have to explore the levels to find items. You just have to get to the end of the level, at which point there's a software gate before you move on to the next section. And before that software gate, is going to be a generation of items in certain stashes that are going to refill your supplies before you move on. But to be honest, I don't think that this is a major issue. If anything, it's just a perk for speedrunners. And to be honest, it probably does more good than it does harm, because it makes it so if players overlooked a certain area that had a lot of gear in it, they're not going to be totally screwed over in the next level. But after this little jump scare, we keep pushing through. Ellie fights some Seraphites or Scars, solves some more puzzles, fights some more zombies, including some stealth-focused zombies that could have been interesting if they weren't so damn stupid. But the peak of this chapter is when we get our first extensive exposure to the Seraphites. You see, they fight differently. They're much more stealthy and careful. They communicate also through whistling. Now, depending on your sound system, tweaking the audio settings could really work wonders. Seriously, you can figure out where enemies are without needing to use the listen mode at all if you have a good pair of headphones or a surround sound theater. It's pretty damn cool. And from what I can tell, there's going to be even more of this type of thing on next-gen consoles with all of the PlayStation 5 3D audio stuff they're doing. It's really awesome. I can't wait. Now a fun little detail just to prove the point of Naughty Dog's attention to detail, here as we push up on a bunch of Seraphites, if we blow up all of the cult members before they're able to disembowel this man, they actually have a backup. Bear in mind this is only possible if you happen to have explosive arrows unlocked and crafted at this point in the game, which is a long stretch if you're playing through on the first run, so it's more of a New Game Plus problem. If you do have it unlocked and you blow up all of the cult members surrounding this man that's being hung and about to be disemboweled and killed, 
he'll actually just hang and it's a much slower and more aggravated death unless you put him out of his misery. I actually tested this where I tried to shoot the rope and cut him down to allow him to escape, but I wasn't able to get it to work. Maybe there is a way to do it and I just have bad aim, I'm not sure. But nonetheless, it's still pretty cool that they have two states available. For one, if they're able to finish their little ceremony, kill him by hanging and disemboweling at the same time, and then the other case being that you kill them before they're able to disembowel him, at which point they just kick the bucket out and he hangs slowly. Now you fight and sneak through multiple levels of these guys, finishing on a mini boss fight with a big Seraphite Brute, the same one that was seen in the Dina Ellie Kiss trailer. Now it's a little less polished in this final version, at least in my opinion. It's less fluid, but it's still awesome. What I mean by that is that there seems to be a lot less scripted elements and animations, but to be honest, you'd probably expect that from a trailer. Now there are grunts in the back room during this fight, which actually makes this a really difficult encounter on New Game Plus, considering that I had used all of my ammo by the time that I got here, meaning that I had to take him on pretty much entirely with melee. Now one of the frustrations with The Last of Us is that it requires a lot of trial and error. A lot of the time, the only way to figure out exactly how to get through a particular encounter is by dying repeatedly and trying again. The worst examples would be, for instance, this scene where I had to run around into the back room, try killing those guys first, and then moving outside meleeing, trying to fight the big brute in the back room, trying to fight the big brute in the front room, and then moving to the back room. It required a lot of trial and error to figure out the best way to do it. Another example would be when Ellie was trying to get the boat in this flooded mall sequence a little bit later. It's visually fascinating as a scene, but on Survivor, it took around 30 minutes of experimenting to find a path that just narrowly dodged everybody's perception, and even then, I'm not convinced that I should have escaped because I got in the boat started it and was spotted and then shots started coming in at which point a lot of bullets definitely hit ellie and she probably should have died but i was still allowed to escape from what i can tell naughty dog tweaked their aim while you're inside this boat to make it feel as though you're whizzing past incoming fire but here i actually forgot that the boat controls in this game are defaulted to the stupidest layout possible so i sat there for a second holding down r2 like a chump before i realized that it was all steered using the left stick and by the time I figured it out, I definitely should have died, but nonetheless, I was allowed to live. So the player and Ellie pushed to the hospital after the fight with the mini boss. We stealth our way into the hospital. We kill this chick that's holding the Vita, who we will also see again later in Abby's sections, but don't worry, she's only in there for a couple of seconds. And then we find out that the WLF are clearing the hospital, which makes sense. They wanna make sure that there's no infected here, but they're also taking all of their supplies back to their headquarters for some reason that isn't explained, though we will figure it out later on when we play as Abby, but as for right now, all we know is that Isaac, the leader, ordered that all of the supplies be returned to the centralized location. Now we go through a bunch of sequences where we can either stealth or fight our way through a bunch of WLF. It's not particularly important, it's just more of the same. But eventually, we push up to the top floor and find Nora. 
She's talking with some other WLF about Abby. Apparently she's missing, and these WLF think that Nora knows something about where she is headed and how she escaped. It's a little confusing for Ellie, because as far as Ellie knew, Abby was one of the head honchos with the WLF. Why is she being sought out by some of the members? Why was she imprisoned? Why is Nora going to be in trouble if it turns out she knows where Abby is? It's very confusing, but it will make sense later. As for the player right now, it just seems as though Abby is in some sort of direct conflict with the group. Now, for a brief moment, I thought that perhaps we were going to pair up with WLF members to hunt Abby down. After all, an enemy of our enemy is our friend, but don't worry, they're not going to do this. You chase Nora through the hospital after a brief interaction where she pushes back at Ellie, asking, You still hear his screams? What? I hear them every night. Yeah. Yeah, that little bitch got what he deserved. You fucking you chase her to a dead end with a break in the hallway that leads to the spore-filled basement as armed guards chase you. Ellie takes Nora hostage and holds her as a body shield, realizing that there's no way out and that Nora's knowledge of her immunity is of no importance since she's going to die from the spores in just a few moments. Ellie takes Nora into the basement, kills some zombies, and finds Nora cowering in a dead-end hallway. And then this sequence plays out, wherein we see Ellie get her hands dirty. Where's Abby? Your breathing spores. Firefly? There are no fireflies anymore. Where's Abby? I'm fucking dead anyway. Why would I tell you anything? <coughs> because I can make it quick. about what he did. How many people are dead because of him? Last chance. I'm not giving up, my friend. Ellie returns to the theater covered in Nora's blood. She's clearly distressed at what she's just done to figure out where Abby is, but she did it, and she knows that she's at the aquarium 
for some reason. Dina helps Ellie clean up, and it's here that we see the first visual example of what this revenge pursuit is doing to Ellie physically. We can infer Ellie's mental distress through the dialogue and behavior, but it's still largely up to interpretation. But these physical injuries are visual and apparent. It's a brief and quiet scene. And after this touching moment, Ellie and Dina fall asleep, which takes us to Seattle day three. We begin with a flashback to two years earlier, when Ellie returned to the hospital from the end of the first game. After exploring the hospital, discovering some paperwork, and eventually a recording, she finds out what truly happened here, and Joel is forced to tell the truth, finally, so as to not lose her forever. Even if we found her, or by some miracle found someone else that's immune, it'd make no difference. The only person who could develop a vaccine is dead. Or by some miracle, found someone else that's immune. It made no difference. Found someone else that's immune. It made no difference. Because the only person. Ellie! off in the middle of the night like that. You talk to me. You don't just leave me a goddamn note. Tell me what happened here. If you lie to me one more time, I'm gone. You will never see me again. But if you tell me the truth, I'll go back to Jackson. No matter what it is. Making a vaccine. So I stopped them. me 
I'll go back. But we're done. This marks a significant pivot in Joel and Ellie's relationship. Ellie's known for a long time that Joel was being less than truthful. She had her suspicions. However, even with those suspicions, she still gave Joel the benefit of the doubt so as to not wreck their relationship. However, now with the truth fully released out into the open air, Ellie feels betrayed. Everything she feared is true. Perhaps the odds of successfully making a vaccine were not particularly high, especially considering how incompetent the Fireflies were throughout the entire first game. However, it's important to note that with this revelation, it's made clear to Ellie that the odds were not zero. Sure, they might not have been great, but they weren't zero. That places a huge burden on Ellie's shoulders, where she feels a duty to humanity to give her life so that others can live and so that humanity could potentially build itself back up. It's an interesting question, especially when you put yourself into her shoes. What if you were in Ellie's position in this world? What if your life held the answer to the cure for all of this? All of the misery could be fixed if you were to sacrifice your life. Now there is an emphasis on could because there's no guarantee that it would actually work. And even if a vaccine were successfully developed, who's to say that anyone would be able to distribute that vaccine throughout the planet? After all, one of the big focuses in The Last of Us Part Two is the fact that the world has gone to absolute hell. People betray each other left and right for seemingly no reason at all. Trust is something that basically doesn't exist in this world anymore. And without a doubt, if somebody were to waltz up to the front of your complex claiming that they had the vaccine, the cure to the cordyceps fungus, chances are you would be highly skeptical and wouldn't allow them into the base at all. The point is, I understand that Ellie's frustrated that that choice was removed from her and that decision was made for her. However, even with that being the case, it doesn't change the reality that this decision is not as simple as cure versus no cure, or Ellie saving humanity versus not saving humanity. Nothing is that simple, nothing is black and white in this world. Perhaps for purposes of general analysis within the story of The Last of Us Part Two, you could point at Joel's actions and say that he damned humanity for the sake of saving one individual that he cared greatly about. However, I think there's two sides to the coin, and you could say that even if they were able to develop some sort of vaccine, it wouldn't have actually gone anywhere, or at the very least, it would have been contained within a very small community. But at the same time, you could also say that if that were the case, and if the vaccine were only used within the Fireflies or the WLF as they eventually became after being splintered across the country, then you could say that Ellie's sacrifice would have been worth it because she could have saved dozens or perhaps hundreds or even thousands of lives. Sure, it's less than millions or billions, but nonetheless, that's a significant number. The broader point is that Ellie feels as though this choice was made for her because it was, and she feels as though Joel betrayed her, especially considering that he's been lying to her about it for years. But after this flashback, we cut back to Ellie waking up in the theater, and she goes looking for Jesse and Dina. 
After a brief conversation about Dina's pregnancy, Ellie and Jesse decide to push out towards the aquarium together. They think that Abby is likely hiding out there. They don't know why she would be there, and they don't know why she would be running from or have reason to be afraid of the WLF. After all, they seem to be the group that she originated from, so at the very least it should get the player intrigued as to what actually happened. When I first played the game, I thought perhaps it was that they were acting out against her after she took this group AWOL to go and find Joel. However, that doesn't actually make much sense considering that all of the other people that went with her on that trip seemed to be operating in their regular profession just fine. So, at the end of the day, all we're left with is a suspicious absence on Abby's part from the group and lots of gossip that's overheard between the characters. But regardless, Ellie and Jesse push up towards the aquarium. And this section, in my opinion, is actually pretty unremarkable. There's not a lot of interesting fight sequences here, and more broadly, it's just served as a chance for Ellie and Jesse to get all of the drama about Dina's pregnancy out on the table. Over the course of the sequence, they determine that she has to return to Jackson. There's no other way. If she is to receive any semblance of health care in the lead-up to the delivery of the child, she's going to need to return to where they came from. This in turn means that this is likely their last chance chance to find Abby, because once they find Tommy, they're all going to pack up and head back to Jackson together. Chances are Jesse and Dina, and especially Tommy, are not going to allow Ellie to remain. Now Jesse knows that it's his baby, yet he's hurt that Dina hasn't told him that she's pregnant yet. She's keeping it a secret, which seems kind of stupid, but I guess that's just me. Regardless, the motivations have shifted. Jesse is not as concerned about finding Abby and getting revenge. Rather, he's looking for Tommy so that they can all return to Jackson together, whereas Ellie claims the same, however, she is much more concerned with finding Abby, as we'll see in just a moment. This all climaxes when Jesse and Ellie hear over a radio that there's a sniper on the pier that's taking out a bunch of WLF members and causing trouble more generally. Jesse and Ellie determined that this has to be Tommy, and it's actually a fair point because the WLF wouldn't be sniping themselves, and the Scars don't actually use sniper rifles in this way, so it's likely not them. So it's either Tommy or another rogue individual who happens to just be sniping WLF members for fun. And of course, it ends up being Tommy at the end of the day, but it's here that we see Ellie make a decision that's much harder to justify. She insists that Tommy is going to be okay by himself, and that he doesn't need her help. While this is perhaps true, it's more the thought that counts. Of course, Tommy has made it this long, and the fact that he's sniping WLF members shows that he's at least somewhat confident in his abilities to deal with them. However, Ellie isn't saying this because she wants to protect Jesse or herself or Dina's well-being. Rather, she's saying it purely because she wants to get to Abby quickly, kill her, and then be able to leave with Tommy, Jesse, and Dina back to Jackson, having accomplished everything she set out to do. I don't know about you guys, but when I first played the game, this was the moment that I immediately lost all sympathy for Ellie. At this point, she's making what seems to me the wrong decision. She's potentially damning all of those that she seems to love for her own selfish pursuit, which is thematically related to what Joel did in the first game, where he seemingly screwed over humanity to serve his own private interests. And once again, this is something that they do time and time again throughout the course of the game. There's parallels all over the course, mirror sequences that are meant to echo what happened previously. 
it's all over the place. Needless to say, Jesse is just as disappointed in Ellie for this decision as the player is likely disappointed in her. So he breaks off and goes to find Tommy and help him get back to the theater so that they can all leave together. However, Ellie splits off alone and she fights for a boat that she saw driving through a canal that she hopes to take to the aquarium that's across the harbor. Now this sequence is super tough, and especially on higher difficulties, it requires an almost exclusively stealth approach. Now thankfully, the designers seem to have anticipated this fact, which is why most of the levels have secret passageways that you can find to get around most of the enemies, so that you either don't have to kill any of them to get through to the next checkpoint, or you only have to kill a select few. In my opinion, these are the best designed levels in the entirety of the game. It's where the stealth mechanics really shine and The Last of Us Part Two is at its best. So you continue pushing to the aquarium and you fight your way through several waves of seraphites, take on a bloater or two, and you solve some environmental puzzles. Nothing too difficult, but nonetheless, they're there. You eventually get your boat to the mouth of the harbor and you start heading towards the shore over by the aquarium. It's at this point that Ellie's overtaken with a rogue wave and almost drowns, but ends up just barely escaping to the shore of the aquarium outcrop. And I will just say, this whole sequence is done so smoothly and beautifully well, I can't compliment it enough. I'm not a game developer myself, but I have delved into a lot of the intricacies involved with designing levels and managing memory systems. To see what they're able to do throughout the course of this game, and especially this sequence, is absolutely ridiculous, and I have to applaud all of the developers over at Naughty Dog for their hard work. But with that out of the way, Ellie pushes into the aquarium and finds a few strange things. There's several doors locked, there's lights on, and there's bloody instruments strewn across an operation table. With the context we have in the game so far, we assume that there must have been some strange torture session going on here, and nothing more. However, as we'll see later, this wasn't as terrible as it seems. Ellie climbs into an air duct, and then the following sequence plays out. This dog may seem like it's just another dog. After all, it was shown off in the trailers as just some mutt that you put down. But don't worry, we're gonna see a lot more of her later. Ellie recovers, but hears some muffled voices through a double door. She pushes through, and the following happens. People don't come back from that island. How many times has Abby risked her life for you? She chose this, I'm not fucking going there. Then don't! Go back. Hands up. Where's Abby? You're that girl from Jackson. Tell me where she went. How do we know you won't kill us? Give her what she wants and we're dead. You guys can survive this. I just need her. Bullshit. You. Come here. Get over here! 
point to where she is on this map, and then you... It better fucking match up. What are you doing? She's probably dead anyway. It is not worth it. Stop! We can talk Back about it. Back the fuck up! Point to where she is. Fucking point! <laughs> <laughs> Tell me where Abby is. Where the fuck is she? Needless to say, this is a deeply upsetting sequence. It's one that I personally saw coming a mile away. You see, one thing I do know about the writers over at Naughty Dog, especially Neil Druckmann and Haley Gross, is that they love their similes. They love the reflections between characters. It gives you a chance to see how these two different people respond to similar situations. And so whenever you start to see things that are similar or things that characters have in common, you have to assume that the developers and writers are going to force those two characters into a similar situation where those similarities can come out. In this case, Ellie's girlfriend, Dina, is pregnant. And one of the first things that we hear about Owen and Abby's group in general is that Mel is pregnant. At this point in the game, we don't know who Mel is when we're standing on this snowy hillside overlooking Jackson, but I personally knew that there was a very good chance that Ellie would end up killing her pregnant friend Mel simply because Dina was likely going to end up pregnant as well. And sure enough, once Dean is revealed to be pregnant, this point was solidified for me. Now, besides the predictability of this plot point, I have to ask one other question, which is whether or not Ellie would have actually killed Owen and Mel if they had tattled on Abby. And given what we know about Ellie in this game, I think the odds are pretty good that she probably would have. It's horrible to say, but 
Ellie was here for revenge. She knows that these people were there, even though technically she owes her life to Owen. Owen's the one that stepped in when Ellie was on the floor staring at Joel's corpse while everyone else wanted to kill her to clean up after themselves, which objectively probably would have been the smarter thing to do, especially considering how The Last of Us Part Two plays out. But nonetheless, she technically owes her life to Owen. Even so, I think she would have killed him. The other question that you have to ask is where is Abby and what happened? Where'd she go? How long is it going to be before she finds out what Ellie has done? Why did she leave in the first place? Now, it's implied that she's fleeing from Ellie. However, this doesn't really make a lot of sense, especially when you consider that she's already fleeing something else. It seems as though she's involved in something that's taking her away from her duties within the WLF, which is why Isaac seems to be upset with her. But nonetheless, I think Naughty Dog is trying to keep the story moving along so that you don't think about it long enough enough to realize that there's got to be more to it. And honestly, I'm okay with that, especially because Ellie herself isn't particularly interested in the reasons why Abby is going to the places she's going or why Abby seems to be at odds with the rest of her group. All she's interested in is revenge. And the last thing about this sequence is that I can't help but feel as though it's a little strange that Tommy, Jesse, and Ellie just leave after this. They see the dead bodies on the floor and don't do anything more. That rhymed, I, I didn't mean it to rhyme, I'm sorry, but I'll, I'm, you know what, we're leaving it in. Now I'm not demanding an elaborate sequence where we clear the entire aquarium of any sort of bogey to make sure that Abby is not somewhere hiding within the aquarium, but at the very least, it seems odd that they wouldn't have done a more elaborate check throughout the rest of the building. They just find Ellie, and clearly she's pretty shaken up about what she's just done, but they just leave. Perhaps at this point, they've just accepted that they're not going to find Abby, that it's not destined to be, and that they've done enough damage that they've made their point. Regardless, the scenes after this are actually quite calm, and it's fairly refreshing. We see Ellie in bed with Dina, and they're just resting. After a while, Ellie goes and talks with Jesse and Tommy, trying to determine the best route back to Jackson. They've officially determined that they can't stay and find Abby, but rather need to get Dina somewhere safe for the sake of her unborn child. All is normal until this. Shit! Jesse! Stand up! Hands in the air, I shoot this one too. Don't you do it, Ellie. Get out of here. Stand up, now. Don't you fucking dare. Shut the fuck up. Fuck. All right, stop, stop. Toss your weapon. Toss your weapon. Fuck. No, no. I know why you killed Joel. He did what he did to save me. There is no cure because of me. I am the one that you want. Just let him go. You killed my friends. We let you both live. And you wasted it. This is a stunningly sudden and sharp narrative beat. I knew something was coming, but I didn't know that it would happen this suddenly. Jesse's death happens almost instantaneously as the cutscene begins. There's no warning, there was no forethought, 
it simply happens and Jesse's dead. There's also a problem with what the what is, what is that? What that's gross. Stop it. Okay, okay. Slight detour. I know this is a serious scene and it's sad and everything, but it was almost completely ruined because the first time that I played through the game, Ellie has a bandage on her arm. It's not actually supposed to be there. It's from the previous sequence when she patched herself up. However, it did something strange where it's warped the actual mesh of her arm so it looks that she has some sort of weird noodle bone disease it's it's bizarre and i wouldn't complain about it except that when i went back through the game on new game plus it didn't happen and her arm looked normal so i can tell that this was a glitch it's just a really really weird one that i don't really know what to make of but nonetheless it it happened and I, I'm going to have nightmares about this weird T-Rex arm that she has, but nonetheless, it, it happened. Hopefully this didn't happen to you, but for me, it almost spoiled the entire scene because I found myself giggling at her messed up arm, but you know what? I'll, I'll leave it there. Now, this marks the end of the first half of the game. And don't worry, we're going to discuss midpoint thoughts and where I was at in my playthrough, what my emotions were, what I thought of everything. But first, I want to go through the next scene. You see, right after Abby kills Jesse, seemingly kills Tommy, and is holding Ellie at gunpoint, we jump to a clip of a young, non-yoked Abby. She's looking for her dad, who is in turn looking for some animal that turns out to be a zebra that's just given birth. It's cute and it's a nice break from the dread that the last 10 hours have brought. Seriously, I didn't realize how much of a trudge the first half of The Last of Us Part Two felt like until we got to this sequence and it felt like something straight out of the first game. Ellie, God bless her, is a really difficult person to relate to in this sequel, at least for me. In the first game, there was something really human about her, something that was reflective of all of us. We could all connect with her and we could all connect with Joe in some weird distant way. However, in the second game, there's not much of that to be seen or had. But nonetheless, I can't help but feel as though Ellie is painfully unlikable in the sequel. Which is why it's all the more bizarre to go through the first half of the game with Ellie, where you don't particularly like her or condone anything that she's doing, and then you reach this point after this character you're playing as, Abby, has killed characters that you really began to respect and enjoy and even love. But now you find yourself relating to her and liking her personality way more than Ellie's. It's really bizarre and I think it was half intentional and half not. What I mean is that I think Abby's relatability and likability was completely intentional. But I don't think that Ellie's lack of likability was completely intended. Now, of course, at this point in the game, players, for the most part, are going to hate Abby. I wouldn't blame them. She killed Joel, one of the most beloved characters in gaming history. And I understand that frustration that now we're forced to play as her. However, they want you to give Abby a chance, which is why they rewind the clock to four years before the events of this game. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I conducted a massive poll of all of you guys to see what you thought of the game and whether or not you felt as though it lived up to your expectations, and if it didn't, what it could have done better. 
There were several dozens of questions involved in the survey, so I'm not going to go through all of them, but I will include a Excel spreadsheet that you can actually use to sift through all of the answers yourself if you would like to. There's actually a lot of really interesting information in here, and I've spent the better part of a week sifting through a lot of the responses because there's a there's a lot of really good stuff here. But one of the things that I was stunned to realize is that a lot of people actually gave up on the game at this point. They got through the first half of the game, enjoyed Ellie's sections for the most part, but once they saw that they were going to be forced to play as Abby, they felt betrayed and stopped playing completely. Now, I was going to show some direct quotations from some of the gamers that expressed this frustration. However, many of them had too much profanity for me to comfortably include in this video with any hopes of getting monetized at the end of the day. So I'm simply going to paraphrase. But if you want to read the actual word for word responses, again, I'll have the entire survey and all of the responses linked below. In general, the people that quit the game at this point felt as though they were being forced to relate to somebody they had no interest in relating to. It's kind of a bizarre idea when you think about it, that somebody would be so upset that they would have to relate to somebody that they would turn off the game entirely and walk away, but here we are. If anything, it could be construed as a compliment to the character building and the relatability and care that people felt towards Joel initially that they're so loyal to him and this imaginary character that he represents that they won't even give the time of day effectively to the character that brought on his demise. And I completely understand how polarizing this decision was on Naughty Dog's part. It would have been a very early decision in the development process to have Abby and Ellie co-stars of this game, to the point where they're both playable for roughly half of the game each. And thankfully, it seems to have, for the most part, been done fairly well, at least in my opinion. I understand that some people disagree with the thematic decision at the outset, but that's not really the question. The question is whether or not it was well executed. Now, once we've gotten through Abby's sections, I'll be able to talk a lot more about whether or not I feel as though they struck a good balance in trying to present both characters equally. I think the biggest problem with The Last of Us Part Two has to do with its pace. It gets really easy to doze off and lose focus, especially in the last third of the game. After all, The Last of Us Part Two asks a lot of the player. It's not that easy, actually, to stay intrigued and involved in everything that's going on, especially because it's so emotionally taxing. But don't worry, we're gonna get into all of that a little bit later. As you go through this sequence, you eventually find the zebra that's been trapped in some barbed wire, and Abby helps her father, with Owen's assistance, cut her loose. She runs off and cuddles with her newborn in a field directly across from the hospital that we saw at the end of the first game, St. Mary's. Their group is informed that Marlene's girl just arrived and that it seems as though she actually is immune, as they were initially told. This is, of course, Ellie, just as she was found at the end of the first game. We then cut to Marlene from the first game arguing with Abby's dad about whether or not to perform the operation that could lead to a vaccine. It's actually the conversation that we always wanted to hear. You see, Abby's dad wants to do it. He feels as though the sacrifice of Ellie is going to be worth it because it could potentially save thousands or even millions of lives. The problem is that they can't afford to ask Ellie or Joel. They have to do it and ask for forgiveness. 
If they were to ask Ellie, she would likely say yes, but if they were to ask Joel, he would likely say no. And as we found out, he would also likely go berserk. It's at the end of this discussion that Abby comes in the room bringing her father some dinner, and she offers a fairly interesting anecdote. You're doing the right thing. If it was me, I'd want you to do the surgery. <laughs> Immediately after this, we cut to black and we transition to Abby running into the operating room, finding her dad dead. Is he still in the fucking building? Is it? Abby. No! Abby, don't look! Dad! This is why Abby wanted to kill Joel. This is made all the clearer by the immediate cut to Joel's death to reaffirm the point. It may seem a little ham-fisted, but I actually really like this because now we can hear this sequence without the murmur and droning out that we had the first time that we saw it. Now we can hear the entire conversation, the debate that goes back and forth. <laughs> Whoa, whoa, what are you doing? Benny. Plenty enough. No, no, no. We're here for him. That's it. It's too risky to leave them alive. Too fucking bad. He's right. We can't have loose ends. We killed them. We're no better than he was. They didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, look at my face. Fuck your face. You should have been guarding the upstairs like I told you to. Move! Back up. Calm down. Or what? Back the fuck up! Calm down! Darden! Shoot me? Stop! We're done. This is the midpoint of the game, really. As far as we can tell, we're done playing as Ellie. The next sequence pops up with Seattle Day 1, implying that we're going to be going back through the entirety of what we just did with Ellie, but from Abby's perspective. It's an interesting flip, and the change of perspective is, after all, the operative narrative element of this entire game's design. But I can't help but feel as though many players are going to already be exhausted from the journey that they just endeavored on. This is why, at this point in the game, is more important than ever. You have to keep the player engaged, especially because many of us probably felt as though we had just played through an entire game by itself. And now you're asking us to play through another game with another character, but in this case, the villain as far as we're concerned. And you want us to give her the same time of day and attention that we gave Ellie, a character that we have a deep relationship built up with after having played a game with her back in 2013. It really is a lot to ask, and I don't really blame a lot of players that decided to walk away at this point. Sure, they may never get the actual story resolved with what happened when Abby pulled the gun on Ellie in the theater, or perhaps they simply fast-forwarded and watched a run-through of the game after that point. And lastly, most players are going to have a very skeptical outlook at this second half. We're all looking for reasons to dislike Abby. After all, she's done something that we would deem most likely unforgivable. 
However, I would like to think that most of us would have an open enough mind to play through this and see whether or not they could be convinced of whether or not she was justified. In that survey I conducted, it seemed as though the overwhelming majority of people that decided to walk away from the game didn't play it after this particular point. And those people tended to rate the game very negatively, averaging around a 4 to a 5. However, of the people that played the game all the way through, the majority of them rated the game in the range of an 8 to 9. It seems to me the conclusion is fairly clear. Those that gave the game the chance to prove itself to them ended up enjoying it once they experienced the whole thing, whereas those that decided to cut and run had the experience that you would expect from somebody who cuts and runs. It really is that simple. You have to give a game like this the chance to do its job. What they're trying to do is convince you that a character you hate is actually a human being that has feelings and emotions that are perhaps just as justified as the character you find relatable. That argument isn't made over the course of an hour gameplay sequence. It takes time and it takes a lot of effort. And more than anything, it takes the open mind of the observer. It may seem like a cliche for many people to say, well, if you didn't like The Last of Us Part Two and you quit halfway through, you just didn't get it and you were never going to like it. However, I think there's a fair amount of truth in that. But I don't know. Let me know what you think. What I do know is that at this point in my first run of the game, I was highly exhausted. Abby's sequences required a lot of effort, both emotionally and physically, to get through. With the emotional tension and all of the gore, it's an exhausting 10 to 15 hours of gameplay to get through. And I will be honest, even I considered taking a break before continuing on with Abby's sequences but I decided to put my head down and give the game the chance that it was asking for. But regardless, this is the time when we begin playing as Abby. The pace changes, the attitude changes, the tone changes, and more broadly even, the style of character work changes. In many ways, it's gonna feel like a different game entirely both for better and worse. But don't worry, we're gonna get into all of it. Seattle Day 1. Abby wakes up and we begin the second half of the game playing as who most of us will consider to be the antagonist. However, this might change by the time we get to the end. This whole game is of course about perspective and relativism, and to that extent it works fairly simply. We're going to be forced to play as Abby at least until we either start to enjoy her as a character, like her, or even love her, or at the very least until we forget how much we hate her. It's not going to happen instantly, but over the course of the next 8 to 12 hours of gameplay, you're probably going to start to lose the hatred you felt for her at one point. Here, Abby is paired with Manny, who was one of the assailants in Jackson. You'll see a lot of them in very casual settings here. It almost feels surreal. You hate these people. These people killed Joel. Why are they so normal, and why do they seem so happy and relaxed? You explore the WLF base where they're stationed, which is actually built out of a stadium. You're preparing to go out on a mission, and so naturally you grab guns, a burrito, and play fetch with a dog. Yeah, okay, since you asked so nicely. Get the ball. Sorry, buddy. My bad. Now, Mel is going with Abby and Manny on this patrol. Of course, this is the same girl that we just saw Ellie kill. 
Once again, it's a little surreal. You just saw this woman get murdered and Ellie freak out as a result. And you also know that Abby freaked out as a result of Ellie's actions towards Mel and Owen. So to see her seemingly fine in this particular instance is a little startling. Nonetheless, Abby and Manny debate for a brief moment as to whether or not Mel should be allowed to go with them. After all, she's pretty damn pregnant, as you can probably see. But they dismiss it because they don't expect to see any action. They're basically just going to go on a quick patrol, make sure that there's nothing too concerning out there. And if there is, they're going to call in support, at which point it wouldn't actually matter that Mel is there. In my opinion, it's still a stupid decision to bring what is a very pregnant woman on what is effectively a military mission to scout out the surrounding area. But that's just me. And it's actually Abby too. At the end of this sequence, Abby actually gives Manny crap for having brought Mel along and says that she definitely should never have been allowed to come in the first place, but nonetheless, they allowed her to go from the outset. Now, while speaking of Mel, the fact that she's pregnant and we just saw her get murdered by Ellie, I think it's also important that we address the elephant in the room that some have said actually ruins the game. And that is that knowing what's going to happen removes all of the stakes in the story. After Ellie's whole half of the game, we know that most of these characters are going to die. And more importantly, we know how they're going to die and when they're going to die. And so going through these sequences where we're trying to protect them or do things with and for them, it removes a lot of the tension since we know how it's all going to end. However, I strongly disagree with this idea. There are countless stories where the conclusion is known before the story even really begins. You could look at something as simple and kitschy as the movie Titanic, a fascinating film about an albeit cheesy and captivating romance. But at its core, we all know how that story is going to end. The Titanic is not magically going to make it back to New York, but rather it's going down and many people are going to die but it's still an interesting and captivating story because it's not actually about the destination that the story reaches. It's about the journey to that destination. Or in a gaming example, we could look at God of War from 2018. We know from the beginning of the game that the story is going to end with Kratos and Atreus spreading phase ashes from the highest peak in the realms. We know the ending from the start, and yet the story is still captivating because it's not just about reaching that destination. Again, to me this seems fairly obvious, but it is actually a pretty common accusation against stories that have presumed endings. In my mind, if you're going to allow a story to be ruined simply because you know how the characters are going to end up at the end of that story, you're not actually engaging and absorbing the media in the correct or at the very least most effective way. Regardless, Abby leaves on the back of a truck out on patrol with Manny and Mel and of course, the dog Alice. Remember I said that that dog that we found in the aquarium earlier that Ellie actually stabs the crap out of would come back again? Well, yeah, this, this is actually the same dog. It's Alice, and she's cute and lovable, and Ellie kills the crap out of her. 
Abby and Mel talk about how they're doing. Apparently, everybody's been struggling with sleep ever since they killed Joel and Jackson. Abby and Owen are also going out on countless open assignments, trying to keep busy and exhaust themselves to the point where they don't have to think about what they've done. These are hardened militaristic people, and the fact that they're so torn up over what they did to Joel it's interesting because at the very least it shows that they were somewhat distressed by what they did and perhaps even some of them regret it. This is the first step towards humanizing these people that you wanted to villainize from the start. It's subtle, but it works. It also breaks the perception that Abby and the crew are simply cold-blooded killers. They're humans, and yeah, they do some messed up stuff, but some of them can feel regret over something that they felt was unjust or, at the very least, a bad choice. However, this gets interrupted by a group of Seraphites ambushing the group on horseback. I personally hate these sequences. The aiming is awkward, the damage feels unfair, and often it's just generally awkward. If we compare it to other car sequences like the one earlier with Jesse traveling all the way down into the river, it's not quite the same. The one with Ellie and Jesse is very scripted from start to finish and feels fair because it's so heavily scripted the player doesn't actually have that much agency. However, if you don't do anything in this car sequence when you're ambushed by the Seraphites, you're going to be killed and have to reload. So you have to be actively engaging with the game in its most awkward state, which to me means that it's subject and worthy of criticism since you're forced to engage with it. Now, Abby and her group eventually get to safety. You push through several different buildings and after fighting through multiple waves of infected and more Seraphites, you find yourself in a gas station being ambushed by yet another wave of Seraphites. Now, a lot of this just feels like bloat. And when we're talking about pacing, that's the last thing that you want to be thinking when going through this stage of the game. Players need to be more engaged than they have been in the entire game to this point, but I think most people are going to start to feel bored because it just feels like more of the same. There are some interesting moments of levity, and there are moments where these characters are actually humanized a lot, which is perhaps more the point of this section of the game. It's not really about keeping the player super engaged, it's about making sure that the player starts to relate to these people that they previously hated. I know it's a lot to ask that we get both, an interesting gameplay sequence that keeps the player engaged and humanizing sequences with these characters, but nonetheless I wish that there were something a little bit more engaging. My favorite part is probably when Abby is discussing her fear of heights with Mel. It's a small moment and it's something that could be easily missed, but I actually find it really endearing. It's kind of hard to imagine you being afraid of anything. I'm not as fearless as you think. Oh, please. Like, I could never do the surgery stuff you do. Be too freaked out about fucking it up. You think I don't feel the same way? Oh, for what it's worth, my dad always said you were his best student. He did? Well, he always said he was an idiot. <laughs> Come on. Once you're at the gas station and after a shootout in a rail yard, a crew of WLF members, presumably alerted by the assault that happened just a few minutes before, come in and save the day, killing all of the Seraphites that were about to get the jump on you. And so you're all rescued, and you're brought to the forward base as it's called. 
Mel goes to get patched up while Abby and Manny go in to see Isaac. Finally, we're going to get to meet the head honcho, the guy that we've been hearing all about for the last 12 or so hours of gameplay since Ellie got to Seattle. On their way up to see Isaac, Abby and Manny are told that Owen was actually off with another member of the squad and that he shot that guy Danny in order to save quote unquote some scar. Needless to say, this could lead to a death sentence for Owen if proven true. We don't really know what exactly happened, but if Owen did actually kill a WLF member simply to save what's considered a barbarian pest on their people, it could end up pretty bad for Owen. And so Abby and Manny head up to talk with Isaac, and Isaac probably has the most badass introduction of any character in this game. We need to go up. Isaac's in there. Oh. Do you know if he'll be long? Said again when you two arrive. Come on. Sir, Abby and Manny are here. Now Isaac doesn't want them to go and save Owen because they're revving up for some big assault on the scars and he can't spare them. Abby says screw it and they go after him anyways because why not? Now there's two things about this. For one, Abby leaving the group to go and find Owen explains why she seems to have gone AWOL in all of those sequences when Ellie was trying to figure out what was going on and why Abby was not with the rest of the group. The WLF were upset with her and wanted to hunt her down because she went AWOL and disobeyed Isaac's orders. This of course doesn't mean that she's not a threat to Ellie, but it does mean that she's not as interested in simply pursuing the goals and hopes and aspirations of the WLF as Ellie perhaps initially thought. Abby's much more of an individual, and perhaps that's even something that Ellie and Abby have in common. The other thing about this is that it seems relatively easy for Abby to go AWOL and disobey direct orders like this. Maybe it's just that she's particularly capable and so she was able to sneak out with any major issue, but she also doesn't seem particularly threatened by Isaac, which is strange considering that our introduction to him is of him torturing a guy. So whether it's hubris or simply a lack of consideration, Abby breaks out and decides to go find Owen herself. Her hope, of course, being that she's going to be able to save Owen and figure something out before the big raid on the Seraphites so that she's never realized to have gone missing. We then have a quick cutaway where we go to a short date between Abby and Owen. They're on a Ferris wheel and it's actually super cute. Once again we see that Abby is terrified of heights and it's again a humanizing moment to see her chilling with Owen and also freaked out. However, once again this is a point when the pace really starts to come into question. What is the deal here? Why is it moving so slowly? Why are we going through all of these cutaways with characters we don't particularly know and most people probably don't care that much about yet when we need to be engaged and going through much more interesting and fast-paced sequences? 
Now, perhaps I'm alone, and my tolerance for fast-paced narrative sequences is much, much higher, so I need a lot more. Maybe that's what it is, and the pace isn't actually as bad as it seems to me. But in these sequences that are coming over the course of Seattle Day 2 and 3, the game's really going to slow to a crawl in multiple moments. But I don't know. Let me know what you think. The date's relatively cute, and it ends within the aquarium, with Abby and Owen talking about their feelings. At one point, Abby breaks away, she's got something else on her mind, and it turns out that she's still thinking about Joel. They're trying to find some way of finding him so that they can enact some sort of revenge. Owen doesn't seem particularly interested in that pursuit, even though he did know Abby's father fairly well from what we can tell. But he understands that this means a lot to Abby, and so he goes along with it, at least for the most part. What is clear is that this is Abby's pursuit, and this is what Abby wants, and she's not going to quit until she finds Joel and kills him. She references multiple times that they need to get back to training, which explains why she's currently not particularly shredded, at least compared to what we see in the present-day quote-unquote sequences of Abby going through and fighting Infected and, of course, Ellie and her gang. That's why in many moments I think her physical buffness and appearance is a direct reflection of her mental state, which is why later in the game, when she's let off of that revenge-based pursuit, she actually thins out a lot and is no longer as much of a meathead. But other than the pace, this is actually starting to work. I found myself actually caring about Abby and Owen and being involved and interested in what was going on within their lives. It's kind of bizarre to say, but I was starting to feel bad for Joel's murderer. We then cut to Abby and Manny at the outskirts of the WLF's territory. She's going to find Owen, and for some reason Manny leaves her to go on by herself. He claims so it's not to draw too much attention and to get them in trouble with Isaac. Even with this excuse, it seems like a bit of a stretch that Manny would leave her to go on by herself, but... I'm willing to let it slide. It's not that big of a deal. Now, the navigation in this chapter is actually pretty interesting, and it's done in a subtle and beautiful way. All you have to do is follow the sunset. It's simple, it's elegant, and it's easy to understand and follow as you explore a given level. Because pretty much all of the lighting in The Last of Us Part Two is ambient, you're always in tune with the direction of light that's coming in from the outside. And I have to say, while exploring multiple of these levels, focusing on the sunlight coming in through the windows to reorient myself, I found it remarkably natural and really cool at just how fluidly this worked. I personally can't remember the last time that a game used the sunlight to direct players in a particular way, but I find it kind of refreshing. Sure, a lot of games use cardinal directions to point players in the right direction. They'll say go north, or go west, or they'll have a compass on screen that allows you to figure out where you need to go. But I don't think that that's the same thing. For one, it forces you to look at the compass itself. Look at a game such as Skyrim. If you ever want to reorient yourself, if you don't happen to know the map like the back of your hand, you have to glance up at the compass and figure out where you need to go. This takes your eyes off of the map and in turn off of all of the amazing artwork that all of the developers over at the studio spent years and years working on. 
I've always thought of this as a real tragedy when it comes to open world game design, that a developer can spend all this time working on something only to have the player completely distracted from it by way of simple exploration, something that should go hand in hand with it. This is why I'm often a fan of completely nixing UI on screen. I just don't think that it's worth it, especially when there's other alternatives, such as having in-game UI. Look at a game such as Death Stranding. Whenever you want to navigate to a given destination to complete a delivery, you set the waypoint on your map. Then, as you head out into the game world to reach your destination, you find that all of the direction that you're given is interspersed with the terrain. This means that the guidance you're given to get from one destination to another doesn't pull you out of the game world or distract you from it, but rather, it pulls you in even more. It makes you look at every hill crest, every ridge, every mountaintop. It's at that point that these open world games really shine. And I honestly believe that's why Death Stranding, even though its world is objectively quite empty, can still captivate players in such an intriguing way. But if you want to hear all of my thoughts on that, go check out my full-length critique of Death Stranding. It's over two hours long. It's, it's a monster. But if you're this far into this video, you're probably game for it. All of this to say, I think that the level design and the direction that Naughty Dog gives the player in this particular sequence with Abby is phenomenal, and I can't applaud it enough. Something as simple as having the player follow sunlight is implemented so well that I think it's absolutely astonishing. Any studio could set up a scene where they demand that the player follow the sunlight, but it's much harder to have that sunlight carry through in every scene, every area, every room that the player enters, such that they know exactly where they need to go next. And so, it's with this guidance that Abby heads west to try to get to the aquarium where she thinks Owen is hiding out. She wants to speak to Owen because she needs to figure out why exactly he shot Danny and whether or not there's two sides to the story. Throughout this relatively calm sequence, you're mostly collecting ammo and exploring buildings, grabbing some collectibles. This really is the calm before the storm, because after this is when the game's really going to pick up and carry through to the final act. And this descent into chaos begins when Abby's climbing through a crack in the wall and, well, this happens. Oh shit! <laughs> I love these you're not safe moments. I really do. As we mentioned earlier, Ellie actually gets jumped while she's adjusting weapons and you're upgrading abilities at a workbench. And now, Abby, while you're in what's presumed to be a covered loading space, Abby even gets jumped. I, I, I just, I think it's so cool. I, I know that maybe I'm in the minority with this, but I, I really do think that it's cool to see. This also reminded me of a flashback when Ellie and Joel were climbing through a crack in the wall and a clicker punched through the wall pulling Ellie out and it starts a mini boss fight. Maybe it's a simile between Abby and Ellie to make you think of them as relatable and similar, but perhaps I'm reading too much into it. At the end of the level, you come upon a checkpoint from the initial quarantine. You just keep coming back here.
There's a shrine set up here dedicated to the prophet of the Seraphite's cult. There's also all of these notes surrounding the shrine that are asking her for various things. And I think it makes the player realize just how different the Seraphites are from the WLF and in turn Ellie. Now we never get to see or meet the Prophetess, which I actually like. Similar to how we don't end up having a major boss fight or clash with Isaac, something I think video games are definitely guilty of doing whenever there's a notable character introduced. If you see a bad guy introduced to the story at some point, chances are you're going to have some sort of boss fight with him or her, otherwise they wouldn't have been introduced in the first place. And maybe I'm alone, but I really appreciate that Naughty Dog bucked this trend and made made sure that these characters stood by themselves and simply turned them into a trophy on your PlayStation achievements list. Now speaking of the Prophetess, or as she's more commonly referred to in the game, just the Prophet, we don't actually get to find out a lot about her. I did a lot of digging to try to figure out who this lady actually was, and I say was because it's implied that she actually was killed before the events of this second game. You see, it seems that soon after the outbreak and Seattle fell into absolute chaos, this woman arose as the leader of a small cult. She claimed that the infection was effectively a punishment on humanity for their over-reliance on technology. So naturally, she prescribed all of her followers to years and years of hard manual labor working in the fields to produce their own food in a way that was congruent with nature itself. This obviously led to a very strict lifestyle for all of the Seraphites, but they were willing to do it because of her guidance. However, she died at some point, somehow. As far as I could find, there's never a mention of exactly how she died. If you came across something, please comment down below. I would love to know. But in all of my digging, in my multiple run-throughs of the game, I couldn't find anything detailing specifically how she died. What we do know is that soon after she died, a bunch of other elders in the Church of the Seraphites took over and started ramping up the critical element of the cult which was control. Naturally, many of the new leaders started to fall into corrupt states. They started to hog more food. They started to control different territories. And before they knew it, the Seraphite cult wasn't about living in congruity with nature, but rather was much more about control and strict adherence to the guidance and dictum of the elders. This is an interesting choice by Naughty Dog's writers, specifically because it makes it so that the Seraphite followers are much more relatable and sympathetic. Whenever you feel as though they're employing some very animalistic and barbarian tactic to achieve a certain end, such as gutting somebody to release them into the heavens for some reason, you can always fall back and partially excuse it because these are people simply following directions that they believe are coming from on high. Most of the Seraphites aren't viciously evil and despicable people trying to do despicable things because they enjoy it. Rather, they're people simply trying to survive in a world that's really, really messed up. And it's no mystery that this is set up right around the time when Abby is starting to feel sympathy towards members, or in this case, former members of the cult. Again, this game is all about perspectives, and it's all about trying to get you to sympathize with people that you didn't think you could possibly sympathize with before. The point is, the Prophet is a very interesting character, specifically considering the control that she seems to have over the Seraphites. 
However, without many details on exactly when she died or how she died, it's unclear at just how long she's been gone. It would be one thing if she had been dead for just a few years and this is what's starting to ramp up, but it's an entirely another case for her to have been dead for 10 or 15 years, leading to over a decade of power struggles which eventually bred this new, morphed cult. Regardless, I think the Seraphites are fairly interesting. At the very least, they're a little bit different and they offer a fresh perspective on how a group of people might go about surviving in a world that's this messed up. I especially like it because so often these types of narratives are completely drowned out with cannibals and barbarians and looters and raiders and basically everybody that you encountered in the first game. It's only in these more interesting and creative, in my opinion, stories where you find something that's a little bit different, such as in Mad Max, the strange obsession and worship of gasoline and cars. It's it's something that's just really cool. And different. But I digress. Abby pushes through this checkpoint and officially enters Scar's territory. Here we'll fight a ton of Scars, and believe me, you're going to be plowing through them by the end of this sequence. There's actually a great mini-boss fight here that I really enjoyed with a woman that I can only assume is named Helga. I don't actually know if her name is Helga, by the way, I'm just saying that because she looks like a Helga, but regardless, Abby bites off a part of her ear, which I thought was kind of funny. But eventually, a bunch of her friends come over, they overpower Abby and knock her out, which then leads straight into a flashback to four months before. This would place this flashback right before the events of the prologue, when Abby and her whole group left for Jackson. It's winter. Abby finds Owen in the aquarium with a bunch of pretty lights put up. It's really relaxing, and it really is this calming contrast that's the name of the game for the second half of The Last of Us Part Two. Something horrible will happen, and then we'll see something pretty and relaxing, and then something even more horrible will happen, and then we cut back to a nice winter scene, and so on. In here, there's actually a minigame where you can shoot some targets with a kitty bow and arrow. It's pretty damn stupid, but it gives the player something to do that isn't just talking. Otherwise, this entire flashback would simply be Abby talking to Owen, walking up some stairs, and then talking some more. It's not to say that Naughty Dog is afraid of doing that in games or having a 10-minute cutscene, but it seems to me that if they can avoid it, they will, and they'll intersperse little mini-games such as this to break up the monotony. Now, the point of the sequence, though, is to show that Abby found Tommy, or at the very least has a lead that he's living in Jackson. And the point, of course, is that they hope that Tommy could help them find Joel. Of course, we know that Joel was living there too, but apparently at this time, Abby didn't know that. It's not clear to me, at least, if Abby still thought they were looking only for Tommy in the opening sequence, or if by that time she thinks that Joel could be there too, but... I mean, some of the dialogue seems to imply that she's looking for Joel primarily, but that they only expected to find Tommy. But again, I, I just don't think it matters too much. The point is, they're going to Jackson for Joel by way of Tommy. And if Joel happens to be there, great. But 
they mostly expect to find Tommy and hope to convince him to share Joel's location or whereabouts. Regardless, after breaking to Owen that she has a lead on Joel's brother, Abby also throws out the fact that Isaac approved the whole squad leaving for weeks on end to chase Joel down. She exclaims that Isaac is more about justice than anyone, which is why he apparently approves of the plan for them to leave for weeks and weeks on end, potentially months trying to hunt down a guy that did something terrible years and years ago. To me, it seems like a stretch that he would be willing to let this many people go, especially young whippersnappers who are involved in the active patrolling and maintenance of the WLF's defenses, but regardless, maybe that's just me and maybe it actually is within Isaac's character to let them go, but it seems like a stretch to me. After a brief debate back and forth, they settle on it. They're going to Jackson, they're going to try to find Tommy, and then they're going to try and find Joel. Once and for all, and finish it. Now we cut back to the forest. This is actually the trailer sequence that we saw back when we first met Abby years ago. I remember when I first saw this scene in the trailer, I thought that Abby was going to turn out to be Ellie's mom in this flashback. But, well, I was wrong. Like, really wrong. The scars start to string up Abby for execution when they're interrupted by a young girl that they've just captured. Yara! Where is the other apostate? Now we don't know what this means, but for simplicity's sake, this girl Yara and the other apostate, whoever they may be, did something to piss off the Scars. After Yara spits in this elder Scar's face, she is sentenced to having her wings clipped. And I have to say, this is probably the least clippy way they could have possibly clipped her wings. The other apostate shows up, who will eventually find out is named Lev. Lev starts shooting arrows at the Seraphites, killing a couple of them, and after a brief tussle with the Elder, she's also killed. Following Yara's direction, Lev cuts Abby down, just in time for her to not die. I mean, seriously, she was really close. They just kind of left her hanging here after she killed the Elder. Little, little ridiculous, but you know, whatever. She was just hanging there, and uh... And that's that. After Abby's cut down, they all prep to fight some zombies, just in case that you forgot that this game actually has zombies in it, because at this point it's been a hot minute since they were featured. And a fun little fact and something to notice is that this rash and bruise over Abby's neck will actually remain for the rest of the main story. It's a great detail and it really helps with immersion, especially as later scenes come and go, you'll see Abby rubbing her neck because it still hurts because after all, she was just hung from it. It's this attention to detail that Naughty Dog is really known for and that you have to compliment them on. These scenes are filmed months apart from each other, in some cases years apart after rewrites and reshoots and then changing the game and level design around and they have to reshoot it because the level design changed. This amount of detail that's thrown in shows just how much they care. They made notes of absolutely everything that was going on with the characters so that months after the fact they would be able to reference back and say, oh, Abby's neck was sore here because she was hung from it just a few hours of gameplay before this in the game's timeline. So make sure that that's reflected in your performance. 
That level of detail is something that's really rare. You mostly only see it in Hollywood, and even then you don't see it on very many productions. But anyway, you escape the infected and come upon your old friend Helga attacking Lev who was leading the pack. You have a quick fist fight where you eventually finish her with a hammer to, well, the face. And Abby gets her stuff back because Helga just happened to be wearing Abby's backpack after capturing her earlier. I actually thought this was kind of a fun touch since the normal way that you would find all of your gear after being kidnapped like this in a video game would be to just find it in a chest or sitting on a desk somewhere. Now there's some dialogue here about the Seraphites and the WLF and it's strange for them to trust each other but at this point they've both saved each other's lives which is why it's a little more understandable. Abby just saved Lev's life from Helga, and Lev just saved Abby from hanging. There's a clear tit for tat here, which is why I think this blood pact is formed. Now Abby eventually asks Lev the obvious question. Never seen scars going after scars before. Seraphites. What the hell did you do? I shaved my head. Fine, don't tell me. And Lev is being honest here, but it's far more complicated than it seems. But don't worry, we're going to get to that later. Your new little crew fights through waves of infected and slowly begin trusting each other more and more. The sequence actually climaxes with Abby carrying Yara while Lev keeps watch. You all push into a small office trailer and set up camp for the night. Feeling bad for them, Abby helps Yara set her arm, which is clearly in some serious trouble. After helping them with this, Abby leaves, just as baffled as they are that she just helped a Seraphite. In yet another reflection between characters, Abby has found herself in the same position that Owen found himself in. She seemingly helped a Scar, which is something that the WLF is never supposed to do. This is going to completely change the following scene, but we'll get to that in just a second. As Abby leaves Yara and Lev, her perplexion is palpable. She cares for these two kids, and she doesn't even really know why. It's the same emotion that the player is likely feeling towards Abby herself, which is why it's so brilliant that it was done this way. Abby is feeling the same confusion and inner conflict as the player, but in this case, she's baffled that she's been made to feel sympathy for members of a group that she's supposed to hate, whereas we, the player, likely feel that conflict because we want to hate Abby for killing Joel, and maybe a part of us still does, but at the very least we're beginning to sympathize with her and even care for her. It's masterfully done, and it's this subtle character work that makes this game what it is, and why, in my opinion, you have to play it all the way through, even despite the pacing issues. Now eventually Abby fights her way through a ton of infected in a shipping yard, and finds her way to a series of boats and ships. You fight your way through another group of infected and stumble across a crossbow, which is actually my favorite weapon in the entire game. After you push through all of these infected, you get to the aquarium where Owen is staying. However, you can't find Owen anywhere. Abby starts to kind of freak out, worrying that he's dead or just abandoned and went AWOL. But eventually, Abby stumbles onto him. He's sitting in the boat that he's been trying to fix up for ages, and it seems as though it's his one safe space left in the world. Abby and Owen start talking, and you know, I, I can't really explain this part in a good way, so I'm, I'm just gonna let it play, so. You wanna tell me what happened? We were cleaning out a small camp. 
just a couple scars and uh, hit this one on the head hard. And he goes down and his weapon's right there. And he doesn't go for it. Instead, he turns to me. And he's old and tired. He was just ready. A lot of scars, and uh, fucking guy. I couldn't do it. Of course, Danny gets in my fucking face about it. I told him I'm done. He can do it himself if he wants. And he points his fucking gun at me. So I grab it, and then... First, I didn't even know which one of us was shot. You defended yourself. Stop. I can fix this. I'll talk to Isaac. I am tired, Abby. I don't want to fight over land that I don't give a fuck about anymore. I'm going to Santa Barbara. The Chaser rumor? I've heard it more than once. The Fireflies aren't regrouping. They're gone. It's a lead. I gotta see it through. What about Mel? She'll be safe here. Okay. We'll talk in the morning when you're sober. Don't do that. Do what? Treat me like I'm fucking insane. You feel the same way. If the Fireflies are in Santa Barbara, I go the opposite fucking direction. What? Nothing. Sorry I grew up. <sighs> you should try it. Oh yeah, how do I do that? Should I go find the people that killed my family? Cut into them? Torture them until they're crying, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. 
sexy times. I personally didn't see that coming at all. And I'll be honest, I'm not entirely sure what to make of it. It kind of comes out of left field because they were fighting and then they start start banging. I, I don't good for them. I mean, I guess it makes sense. There's a lot of tension and, and visceral emotion going on, but it seemed to come out of nowhere to me. I don't know if there's some deeper literary reason for this. I would love to hear it. I'm not sure. I've thought about it, but I don't really know what to make of it. So moving on. Seattle Day One wraps up with Abby having a bizarre nightmare about Yara and Lev being killed and strung up in the very same hospital room where her father died, which to me seems to imply that she feels some sort of familial attachment to them since in her dream, they die in the same place that her father died. I really don't think you can understate the significance of her seeing them in this space. If she was stressing out purely about them being killed, why wouldn't she just have a nightmare where she imagines coming across their bodies as she was heading back to the WLF base? The fact that she has this dream and it's set in the hospital is significant, and I think it shows that she has a much deeper bond with these kids than even she realizes. So, after this dream, she decides that she needs to go and make sure that they're okay. Yeah, she's actually going to go and help Scars. She's just as baffled as any other WLF member would be, and it seems that she's coming to the realization that Owen also came to. She's done with all of it. Seattle Day 2 So after Abby wakes up, she rushes back to the shipping yard to try and find Yara and Lev. She encounters a ton of scars, including several brutes, which leads to a fairly interesting combat encounter. After clearing them out, Abby heads back into the office trailer, and she finds Yara in really bad shape. Her arm looks like a cherry Laffy Taffy, and it's clear that it's going to need some, let's just say, severe treatment. So, she picks Yara up, and she brings her to the aquarium with Lev trailing close behind. Her plan is basically to have Mel treat Yara's arm in whatever capacity that may take. Needless to say, this is a pretty big gamble, because if Abby is found out and ratted out to Isaac and the other WLF members, she's likely going to end up either completely ostracized from the group or downright executed for helping out their prime enemy. Sure, you could say that they are former members of the group now and that they should be helped because they are apostate from the group, but it doesn't really matter. In this type of situation, the enemy of the enemy enemy is your friend. In this case, the enemy of the enemy is not actually your friend. It's just somebody that you should ostracize and kill because complicated moral and ethical quandaries aren't worth the trouble in a post-apocalyptic world. Regardless, after taking a look and not initially freaking out, Mel determines that the bone is completely shattered and that the arm has to come off if she has any chance of surviving. Mel then explains what she needs for this operation. She could just take a knife and hack at it and try to cauterize the wound with fire, as Owen points out, but this would likely lead to infection very quickly. If they're going to do this, they might as well do it right. So Mel requests a saw and some other surgical equipment. Abby says that she could get it from the hospital, problem being that the hospital, according to the WLF routes that are in place right now, is going to take roughly a day to reach and then a day to return from. Far too long for Yara. It's at this point that Lev offers help by giving access to the bridge system that the Scars use to navigate the city from the rooftops. It's not clear exactly what this is going to be or what form it's going to take. 
It also is a little strange to me that the WLF members, such as Owen and Abby, don't seem to be aware of this bridge system whatsoever. They're aware that the Scars are able to navigate the city very quickly, so quickly that it seems almost supernatural, but apparently it never occurred to them that they might be using bridge systems above the city by using the rooftops. The point is that Lev offers to give them access to this bridge system. Lev knows these routes very well and says that they should be able to reach the hospital in around two hours if they were to follow the route. And so, without much hesitation, Abby agrees and leaves. As they're leaving the aquarium, Owen stops Abby and tries to talk, but she is not interested in addressing what happened the night before with the sexy time, and it seems that she's found her new family an obsession. This is the first time that we've really seen her move past Owen and behave in a way that doesn't seem completely obsessive towards him. It's kind of refreshing, to be honest. Prior to this, it's very clear that Abby still has feelings for Owen, and even in the first chapter, when we originally met Abby and Owen, when they're overlooking Snowcrested Jackson, we saw that Abby and Owen shared a strange tension. Abby and Owen could never really get on the same page after her father died, and quite obviously, since Joel's death, nothing has changed. This has led Owen to sticking with Mel, even though they're pretty clearly not compatible and even don't seem to particularly like each other. I'm not entirely sure if this was intentional or not, but the fact that there's zero chemistry between Owen and Mel seems pretty obvious to me. And if the writers are even somewhat competent, as I believe they are over at Naughty Dog, surely somebody noticed this. So either it was masterful performance on the part of the actors and the writers to make sure that these characters didn't seem to have that that much in common, didn't seem to get along particularly well, and that they had an immense amount of tension brewing between them. Either that was completely intentional or it was an accident, and it was the result of a misfire in the writing. I think it's the former, personally. I think that Mel and Owen are supposed to come off as a little strange. Everyone else in the group seems to be aware that their relationship is a little bizarre, and that Owen and Abby seem to have feelings for each other, and they're confused as to why they're not just together. But that tension will eventually be resolved. Just... just wait. After leaving the aquarium, Abby and Lev head to the tower that they need to climb all the way to the top of in order to gain access to the aforementioned bridge. It's pretty damn high up there, and it happens to be covered by clouds and fog. This is a nice and coincidental thing because it adds to the tension of the situation. But it doesn't answer the question as to how the WLF weren't aware of this bridge system, because chances are it's not always cloudy and foggy to the point where you can't see to the top of these skyscrapers. Surely somebody saw these bridges when the sky was clear. It seems bizarre to me that the WLF didn't feel the need to explore these bridge systems that seem to go perfectly between skyscrapers and buildings very high up, especially when they would have been visible from the ground. But. I guess that's just me. Now, as Abby and Lev are heading to the top of this tower, they climb through multiple buildings, explore some different areas, and they share in a few interesting conversations. Now, there's nothing really crazy here. It's mostly awkward small talk, but it mostly serves to show that they're growing more comfortable with each other. My personal favorite moment is when they come across somebody's apartment who was clearly very into gaming. In fact, they even still have their D&D game set up, and they have their PlayStation gear scattered 
scattered throughout the apartment. It's kind of cool. And personally, I would like to think that this whole apartment is modeled after one of the developer's apartments. I've heard stories of developers from Bethesda and Rocksteady doing this type of thing, where they take an environment, model it after their own personal environment, because after all, that's what they know. It's a little piece of the real world in this imaginary world. And I just think that it's super cool. And I thought that this particular building was especially detailed. The two travel through a plethora of buildings. They push through some rapids and they eventually land on a construction site that's next to the target building. Now it just so happens that in this construction site is one of the most interesting combat arenas of the entire game. There's a ton of verticality here and there's a lot of Seraphites scattered throughout. Some of them are brutes, some of them have short range weapons, and some of them have long range weapons. It's really interesting how they laid all of this out and on harder difficulties, let me just tell you, it kicked my ass a few times. But it's important to say that it felt fair. It wasn't as though I was getting my ass handed to me and I felt like I was being slighted, like a poorly designed boss that's able to clip through walls or something. This level feels completely fair. It just seems like a difficult situation where Lev and Abby have to work perfectly in tandem. And when that happens, things work out. But after clearing this area, the two get into an industrial elevator that they can take all the way to the top to reach the bridge. Now, if you remember from earlier, Abby's worst nightmare is heights. Here, Lev actually shares a bit of sweet advice to try and take Abby's mind off of the terror that she feels due to the enormous and ever-increasing heights. Can I give you some advice? Oh my god. Just think about the good parts, Ty. The good parts? Yeah, like you run faster. You're more focused. Oh my fuck. You don't feel pain as much. Every bad feeling, your palms sweating, your heart racing, they're all signs you're actually strong. So when you feel afraid, you should think about how your body is getting ready for what's coming. Only when weak may I carry my true strength. Now at the top of the skyscraper, they begin crossing the bridge, which is actually just a partially collapsed crane. This again reaffirms the point that the WLF probably should have seen this crane on a clear day and been intrigued enough to go and investigate it, maybe even claiming it for themselves. Maybe there's a line or something that mentions why the WLF haven't used this bridge and I just missed it or I couldn't think of it or remember it when writing this script, but either way, if, if there is something, let me know. Now, understandably, Abby starts crossing the bridge and begins to completely freak out. To be honest, any normal person would probably be freaking out at this point. I don't think it's just people who are afraid of heights, but the fact that Abby is completely and utterly petrified by heights I think just proves the point that this is not a good time for her. And it's actually while crossing this makeshift bridge that Lev throws out one of the funniest lines of the entire game, at least as far as I'm concerned, because it comes out of absolutely nowhere. What's going on between you and your friend Owen? Oh my god, Lev, now? It seemed really awkward. Just go! Ha! Love it. Now, after crossing the first bridge, it seems as though they've finished and gotten through the hardest part, but... No. Holy shit, Lev! It's gonna be okay. Eyes on me. Shit. 
Now, this is one of the few times I really remember being completely blown away by a set piece in this game. The bridge is beautiful and yet creepy at the same time. And the hospital in the distance is also awe-inspiring and serves its purpose very well in informing the player of where they are within Seattle. I will say, though, it was a little disappointing because there was some artifacting and Z-fighting on the textures when I first played, but I can get over it. It's pretty rare to see a graphical glitch like this in a Naughty Dog game, so I'm willing to let it slide. But just like that, Abby crosses the bridge. She's conquered her fears. With Lev's help, she's achieved that which she thought was unachievable. That she could cross this grand expan- Oh my god, she fell. So yeah, she uh, she falls. Good thing there was a penthouse pool, right? Now the new dynamic duo decides to work their way to the bottom of the tower now that they've crossed. Once at the base, they are going to be able to head straight for the hospital. Throughout the descent, there's a few hordes that you fight through of infected. Abby also finds a flamethrower, which is probably the best horde weapon in the entire game because it has such a wide spread. It makes it really easy to handle crowds and large numbers of infected, but I will say that ammo is so limited it makes it really hard to use it in any sort of consistent way. I'll also say that this tower actually excited me. I thought there would be some really cool opportunities for different combat sequences with a lot of verticality and maybe some platforming with the rope mechanic, something. But really, there's not much here. You just kind of make your way to the bottom of the tower and that's it after fighting through a few rooms of infected. Seems like a missed opportunity. But regardless, they get to the bottom and they come out right by the hospital. And this is actually the same exact area that Ellie entered the hospital earlier, or in continuity, I guess, after this. And this is probably a good time to bring up the fact that there are a lot of reused areas in the game. This has been something that a lot of people have criticized, that Naughty Dog seems to just be recycling the same maps and levels with different characters, or in this case, just between Abby and Ellie. But I don't think it's actually fair to criticize them purely because they reuse levels. A level in a video game, at least, seems to be, in my estimation, a collection of different items, a layout of a map, and in general, a pool of possibilities. Different things that the player can do to interact with that level to achieve a set goal. A really simple level would just be a room with a door. You walk to the door, open it, and leave you've completed the level. However, a complicated level would be one in which you have a complicated goal, such as making it out of this area alive. And then the developer complicates the achieving of that goal by introducing many different enemies that you could fight, complicated traversal, or maybe even a puzzle that you have to solve in order to get through the door. This is how you take a level from something as simple as walking through a door into something more complicated and engaging for the player. For this reason, I don't think it's completely fair to say that Naughty Dog is purely reusing levels here because Abby and Ellie interact with these levels in completely different ways. When Abby's walking through the hospital here and eventually finds Nora, she's not 
actually fighting these people. She's not shooting them. She's not throwing bombs and molotovs on them. She's just walking and talking. Not to mention that you also go to areas of the hospital that were unseen by Ellie. And when you compare this to how Ellie traversed this level, well, it's pretty different. Now, if your point is that they are clearly taking shortcuts in terms of development by putting these characters in the same levels and structuring the story in that way, I, I think you can make that point and perhaps that's fair. I don't see the inherent problem with reusing a level if it makes sense in the story, or if you write the story in a way where that makes sense, because a quality game can be set in something as small as a couple of hallways. Look at something like PT, which was technically just a playable teaser, but even that was considered to be wildly successful, and it only really took place in two hallways a back room, and a bathroom, I suppose. That's really all there was to it, and yet it was phenomenal. You can nitpick something as simple as how many times a particular mesh is used throughout a game, or you can argue your point based on how the game uses that asset. I think the latter is much more reasonable and much more defensible. But I digress. Abby heads into the hospital alone, leaving Lev behind because, quite obviously, if Lev were seen anywhere near the hospital, he likely wouldn't survive for very long. Abby plays it cool with all of the WLF members, but it's only a matter of time before everybody finds out that Abby's disobeyed Isaac's orders. I think Abby knows this, which is why she's moving through the level pretty quickly, trying to find the materials that she needs and leave. I mean, not to mention also that the girl that she's getting the materials for is on death's door. That probably motivates her, her rushing a little bit, but by who am I to say? You walk through here talking to a few people and, oh, oh, look, look, it's the Vita girl that Ellie stabbed the crap out of earlier. Or, I guess, later, because he or she's still alive. That's... That's funny. Now, Abby doesn't make it far into the hospital, though. She's arrested once they check in with Isaac and find out that she's actually been AWOL since the day before. So, she's locked up in the elevator. She's basically going to be held until they transport everything back to the front base with Isaac, where she'll be dealt with. Again, this is something that was mentioned several times, not just to Abby, but also that Ellie overheard. There's something going on with the WLF where they need all of their supplies at the front base, and they're also collecting all of the WLF members to that same front base. There's something happening, Isaac's mobilizing everybody, something's about to go down. Isaac mentioned earlier that he's planning on doing one final push into the Seraphite Island that they have to finish the war once and for all. It's a pretty big deal because without a doubt, many hundreds or even thousands of people are about to die. I could have seen an alternative timeline or storyline where Abby, instead of going after just materials to save Yara, decides to go and try and stop this invasion to save all of the lives of the Seraphites and the lives of the WLF that will be wasted in this endeavor. But I understand that this is probably a little more relatable, especially because when you can emotionally attach the player to one character, in this case Yara and in another instance Lev, you can do a lot more compared to if you're trying to make the player feel emotionally engaged and attached to an organization such as the WLF or a cult such as the Seraphites. Now while Abby's locked up in the elevator, Nora just happens to come by and she comes in clutch and lets Abby go. 
This is actually why she was in trouble with the WLF members back in Ellie's section when she was climbing through the vent. It's because they think that Nora let Abby go, because, well, she did. Again, I think it's really cool to get a fresh understanding of everything that was going on with this new perspective. Yeah, you don't need to know everything that was going on to have an enjoyable gameplay experience or narrative experience. There's plenty of examples of books that don't really explain much of anything of what's going on. They just kind of leave it there and leave it for your personal interpretation. In The Last of Us Part 2, however, everything's been thought through, at least to a certain extent, such that you're able to go back through it with this new perspective, learn more, and figure out why these characters were doing what they were doing. They weren't just moving materials from one location to the other to be convenient for the game's story, but rather there was an overarching theme and idea behind it. Even though that invasion has nothing to do with Ellie, and really would never have been brought up if Ellie's story is where the game ended. Now Nora leads Abby to the basement to let her collect the stuff that she needs for Yara's arm. She doesn't know exactly who she's helping out or why she needs everything that she needs, but what she does know is that these surgical materials are probably going to be used for the betterment of somebody's life, and she knows also that all of the other materials in the rest of the hospital have been picked clean and are being brought to the forward base, where Isaac wants them. And so the only place that's left for Abby to collect these items would be the basement. Problem being, when the outbreak initially happened in 2013, on outbreak day, everybody was brought to the hospital. With this, obviously, there was a massive outbreak within the hospital itself, and eventually everything was quarantined off, the doors were locked, and the stairs destroyed, such that the infected couldn't reach the upper levels, and we'd be trapped in the basement indefinitely. Now, if you've played the original Last of Us, you know that Zombies don't tend to age like a fine wine. The more serious and severe zombies in the world of The Last of Us come with age. This means that all of the zombies and infected that you're going to see in the basement have likely been there for a quarter century. That makes them some of the most dangerous and severe infected in this entire city. Now, I don't know about you guys, but the second that I figured this out, I knew that we were probably going to end up finding a new type of infected, or at the very least, a new boss, and I was damn ready for that. The infected in The Last of Us Part II seem to be a bit of an afterthought. There's not a whole lot of focus on them, and I get it, there's a lot more going on, but I kind of miss how central the zombies were in the original game. So the idea of having a brand new type of infected introduced that we have to go up against was pretty interesting, and I was damn ready for it. And so Nora leads Abby to the basement to let her collect everything that she's going to need for Yara's arm. And it's at this point that she leaves Abby to it. And of course, as we know, she heads back upstairs to be confronted by Ellie. Now it's at this point that Abby enters what Naughty Dog labeled this level as, which is Ground Zero. She heads into the basement where all of these infected have just been sitting since the initial outbreak. And even Abby knows that there's probably going to be something pretty serious in here. And it's only verified and reaffirmed by the fact that she starts seeing and hearing strange things almost immediately. Now Abby pushes on and explores the area trying to find the stuff that she needs. And eventually she reconnects the power and pushes through some locked doors only to find... The fuck did this? Yeah, the door has been ripped open. There's something really big here, and Abby knows it. However, there's nowhere else to go, so Abby pushes through the tunnel and eventually finds the tools that she needs in an ambulance. 
But of course, because timing is perfect in every horror situation, this guy comes along. Yeah, this horrific monstrosity comes out and poses the next boss fight to the player. It's a coagulation of multiple infected and clickers, and it, it it's pretty disgusting looking, and I, I actually think that it's pretty impressive, all things considered. Uh, something I did not see coming, to be honest. However, I'm sorry to report that this disgusting creature is not actually that difficult, all things considered. He moves so slowly that he can't be considered a major difficulty unless you're on, for instance, grounded. He moves so slowly that I wouldn't even really consider him much of a threat. He is a bullet sponge, to be completely honest, but if you have enough ammo, you're just gonna run around the building eventually hurling things at him, especially since they have dynamically generated crafting materials scattered throughout this floor. This means that you can always collect items, run to a corner, craft, run to another corner, equip it, and then throw pipe bombs and molotovs at him if you need to. And I think more broadly, difficulty in this game tends to come from the quantity of enemies, and Oh, mother fuck. Yeah, it's, it's real nasty. So you unload absolutely everything that you have into these two until they're eventually killed. And so Abby heads back up to the surface with all of the gear that she came for. She reconnects with Lev and they head back to the aquarium. It's with these newfound tools that Mel is able to successfully amputate Yara's arm and she does survive it. It seems as though Abby's new family is going to be okay after all. Except totally not. That's not how anything in this game works. You should have known that by now. But of course, to finish out Seattle Day 2, there's another flashback slash dream where Abby is in the hospital where her father died, heads into the room where her father was found dead, except this time she sees him alive and smiling, which to me actually represents something very significant, something that I do not think you can understate. Seriously, I think this one little flashback slash flash sideways slash dream I think this is probably the most important moment of Abby's entire character arc. If you listen to anything in Abby's sections, it's this. Allow me to make my point. This moment to me seems to represent Abby having finally made atonement for her sins and the death of Jewel, while at the same time coming to complete peace with her father's death. I mean, at the very least, she doesn't seem to be struggling with sleep anymore because she's not having nightmares. She's actually having a good dream where she reconnects with her father. That's not a good dream, I don't know what is. Furthermore, the last time we saw Abby rushing into the room where her father was found dead, she witnessed Yara and Lev strung up and disemboweled. As we established back when that scene took place, it seemed as though that was implying that Yara and Lev were starting to have a significant impact on her psyche. And that's the toned down version. I would argue that they seemed to be starting to take a place in her mind and life that was previously occupied by her father. It's a familial place that only is reserved for those that you truly care about. And whether it makes sense, whether it's justified or not, 
Abby does feel that intense connection to Yara and Lev. Maybe it's just because they saved her life when they didn't need to, or maybe it's because there's something more going on, an actual interest and appreciation of each other. But regardless, it's there. Abby seeing her father in this setting, looking at her with a caring face, a face that says everything's gonna be okay, I think is incredibly significant. She just saved Yara, and in turn seems to have saved Lev at the same time. Everything seems to have worked out, and as far as they know, the next day they're gonna be able to load up in Owen's boat and head off to Santa Barbara. It really does seem as though we're gonna have a happy ending. And with that, Seattle Day 2 ends. Seattle Day 3. Abby wakes up to drama brewing. She slept well, but Mel is pissed, and basically she just wants Abby to leave her, Owen, and the new kids alone. She says that if Abby sticks along for any longer, then she's going to screw everything up. So she might as well leave them to go to Santa Barbara by themselves and remain here with the WLF. I mean, the drama kind of makes sense, considering that Abby just slept with Mel's baby daddy, and I don't know if she knows this or if she and Owen talked about it, but either way, it upsets Abby pretty significantly, and Abby actually starts to cry. One of the first times we see a crack in this facade that she puts forward. And I think this hits hard for Abby because she probably knows that it's true, at least to some extent. I mean, she is kind of toxic. She literally dragged a group of her closest friends halfway across the country just to murder a dude. Meanwhile, Yara is dealing with Lev, who's come to the naive conclusion that he can convince their mother to join them in abandoning the cult. Yara, of course, realizes that this is a naive and stupid estimation of what they could do with their mother, but nonetheless, Lev is convinced that there is a way. So, Abby and Yara look for a gift that they can give to Lev to make him feel better and stay. Now, it's during this chapter that the elephant in the room comes out, and it's something that I'm sure many of us saw coming, especially if you've been listening to the passive dialogue for the last few hours of gameplay. You see, Lev is trans. In some of the previous combat sequences when you're moving with Lev through, for instance, the construction site and fighting a lot of Seraphites, there's times when the Seraphites will actually call out to Lev referring to him as Lily. Now, if you've been kind of mentally checked out for the majority of the game, this might come as a total shock, or it might just be confusing as to why they're referring to this character as Lily and not Lev. But it's for that very reason that Yara and Lev left the group. Lev was to be married off to one of the elders. Naturally, Lev did not agree with this or like the idea, and so started acting out, eventually cutting his hair and fully transitioning, wanting to be referred to and treated as a male Seraphite, going out on patrols, being trained and used as a soldier. And in what comes as absolutely no surprise to anybody, the Seraphites weren't exactly the most supportive of this transition. So they decided that they were going to severely punish Lev, or at the very least, we're not going to allow this alternative lifestyle, shall we say. And so Yara, being a supportive and strong sister, decided to come out with Lev and help him escape. This is, of course, why they're constantly referred to as apostate by the Seraphites, and why so many of the Seraphites in combat sequences will call out and ask Yara and Lev why they're doing what they're doing. Because as far as they knew, up till very recently, they were just fine. Now, there's been a lot of hubbub about this plot point. 
There's been a lot of debate, both left and right of center, as to whether or not this was handled well. And to be honest, I'm not really qualified to come to a determination on that point. But to me, it seemed to be handled relatively well, though in this particular scene in the aquarium when Yara and Abby are talking about it, it does seem a little heavy-handed. When I first figured it out for sure was a few hours before this, when Lev and Abby were exploring the tower together. And Lev actually asks Abby whether or not she heard what the other Seraphites were calling him. This, of course, was referencing the fact that the Seraphites constantly referred to Lev as Lily or as the apostate. Abby said she was aware of this, but that she didn't need to talk about it. That, I thought, was a pretty discreet way of handling something that Lev probably isn't too excited to talk about, and that, frankly, isn't that important to what their end goal is. And this is one of the things that I've liked about Naughty Dog's work in the past. When they have more diverse cast members or characters within their stories, it's usually not the defining point of that character. If there's a gay character in the original Last of Us, it's there for you to see and you can put it together if you're paying any attention whatsoever. But it's not the defining point of that character. When somebody is purely defined by one trait of themselves, whether that's something like sexual identity or their religion or their appearance, it's always a bad thing because people are far more complicated than that and you shouldn't boil yourself down to just one trait. You're far more interesting than that. This is why generally I feel that Naughty Dog's approach to these types of things is good, because they don't make it the defining characteristic. However, in this most recent game, The Last of Us Part Two, and in their previous title, Uncharted The Lost Legacy, they fall prey much more to these heavy-handed traits, where they make a character define themselves purely by an external trait. And while I have no problem with whatever that trait may be, by itself, I think that defining a character that you are crafting and putting into a story by just that one trait is lazy writing. And I think it does a disservice to the people who actually share that trait in reality. But nonetheless, I think it's handled relatively well, if not a little heavy-handed. But it doesn't seem to be that crucial of a reveal, and as far as I can tell, most people don't particularly care. I also can't help but recognize that Naughty Dog saved this reveal, quote-unquote, for my much later in the game. Chances are, if you've made it this far, you're going to be much more understanding, whereas if they put this reveal much earlier on in the game, it would be troll fodder without a doubt. Maybe that's smart, maybe it's cowardly, maybe it's just a coincidence that it's revealed later in the game. I'm not sure. Either way, I don't particularly care, and I don't think it matters. Well, after they find a nice gift for Lev, they eventually push out to the edge of the aquarium and realize that Lev's taken a boat and is headed straight for the island that the Scars are based out of. Lev's gonna try to save his mom, but it really is, it's just stupid to do this. This was one moment where I was a little confused, just because Lev doesn't seem like a naive or stupid person. Yeah, Lev's young, but that, isn't necessarily directly correlative. You can be young and wise beyond your years. Look at Ellie, for instance, in the first game. She was young, but she was not naive whatsoever. I do not think that Ellie would have made this same rash decision. At the very least, she would have taken some time to plan out some way of dealing with this potential problem of leaving her mother forever, potentially. However, because Naughty Dog needs a reason to show the player that Seraphite Island and this huge raid that the WLF are going to be carrying out on the island, 
they just put this together and say, well, we'll have Lev race to the island, and then you follow Lev, and you'll get to see all of this crazy stuff. I, I think that this one is, again, a little bit of a coincidence and seems to reek a little bit of the writers trying to force characters into a situation that hasn't naturally percolated through the circumstances of what's going on. And that's why this timing here is so important. It's because Abby's group is going to try to leave Seattle before the storm picks up. That storm is going to be used as cover for Isaac's final push onto the Seraphite Island. And Isaac is not going to be delaying this push whatsoever at all. He's done with fighting as he told us earlier in the game. That's why all of this gear has been moved to the front base. It's because they're going to have one last wipeout fight to finish the scars for good and be done with them. And at the same time, Abby can use this storm as cover to make her escape to Santa Barbara. However, this is much more of a lesser point because realistically, Abby and Owen, Mel, Yara, and Lev don't really need that much cover to escape. If they have a boat, they can just leave. The WLF, as far as I've seen in this game, don't actively patrol the water. They do have boats that they use, which is, after all, where Abby and Yara are going to grab a boat here in just a minute, but they don't seem to patrol it actively. I don't know, if they do patrol it actively and that's why all of these people need the storm to cover their tracks, that would be interesting, but I'm not aware of any time when that's directly referenced. If you know, please let me know in the comment section below. And so Abby and Yara naturally decide that they need to go and get Lev because if Lev steps foot on the island, chances are he will be killed within the first 20 seconds of being witnessed by any of the other Seraphites. And so Abby and Yara start to push for the marina. They eventually hear some sniper shots and Yara determines that she needs to stay behind. She, after all, only has one arm at this time, so it's a little harder for her to navigate these complex passageways of ladders, stairs, and rafters that she has to jump across. You eventually cross into a wide-open interstate and are instantly tackled right as you pop out by who else but Manny. This is where the sniper is. He's got you pinned down and has apparently killed all of Manny's guys. And so Abby and Manny work together to push up and take out this sniper. It's actually a pretty crazy sequence, very detailed too. I mean, just look at how the sniper is shooting at Abby here as she advances through this ditch. He even shoots the body that's laying right on it and part of the body's head blows off, which made all of this way more intense for me. I don't know if this happens every time for everybody or if it was just a coincidental thing that the bullet happened to land right here, but either way, this spooked me and made me feel as though I was right in the thick of it. Now, quick sidebar. Remember why Jesse and Ellie separated just a few hours ago? Well, it's because they heard that there was a sniper at the marina and they assumed that this sniper had to be Tommy. So, Jesse and Ellie separated so Jesse could go and find Tommy and Ellie could leave and go to the aquarium. Also remember the previous sniping section that we had with Ellie in the flashback. Remember I said that that wasn't just a one-off sniping tutorial, even though it wasn't really going to be used at any other point in the game? Well, it was for this very reason. They needed to establish that Tommy has sniping experience and is good at what he does. And sure enough, 
who do you think this sniper is? Whether or not the player realizes this in this particular moment, I don't think is too important because either way you push up. But I think it's actually probably a cooler moment if you don't realize it's Tommy handling the sniper rifle. When you're thinking of it purely as an NPC sniping at you, you have a much easier time just plowing through, chasing him, shooting at him, trying to kill him. But once you realize it's a character that you also know and kind of love, but is actively threatening the life of another character that you're starting to enjoy and care about, it's that interesting conflict that makes The Last of Us Part Two such a strange and bizarre story. Abby and Manny push up and eventually get the sniper cornered. However, right as they reach the point when they feel as though they've got him, this happens. Manny. And just like that, Manny's dead. And now Abby is mad. This is, in my mind, just like the sudden death of Jesse. It comes out of nowhere and is a total shock. Again, similes all over the place. Ellie lost a close friend out of nowhere very suddenly, and the player has to also deal with it suddenly and shockingly. And now Abby is losing a close friend of hers and is forced to deal with it in the same way. So you stealth around a little bit and Abby pushes through the door. If you just look on her face, you know Abby knows who this was. She knows that Tommy is here and that that is very bad. This is especially bad because Manny just said a few moments ago when you were in the interstate that there's more than one trespassers in town killing WLF members. Fuck these trespassers. What trespassers? last few days, they came out of nowhere. They're hitting us hard. This means that even if she killed Tommy just now, which is a stretch, there's a lot more people that are in town killing WLF members. And if Tommy's here, chances are it's other people from Jackson coming to get revenge for what she did to Joel. Regardless, Abby doesn't really have the time to freak out about this. She puts it out of her mind and heads to the island in a boat, which they take from the pier. The same boat and pier that the WLF members use, apparently, occasionally. Her goal is simple. She needs to find Lev and get out. 
If she can do that quickly, she'll avoid Ellie and her entire revenge crew completely. Abby and Yara reach the Scars Island. Yara takes the lead and brings Abby into the heart of one of their major camps. And the most interesting thing about this actually is that Yara and Lev still buy into the cult, even though they've rejected the leadership. May her light guide us through the storm. When you're lost in the darkness, look for the light. What's that? Something my dad used to say. And to be honest, I don't really know what to make of this. I've heard stories of people that were involved in cults that get out and still partially believe it, even though they feel as though it was corrupted somewhat. They feel as though there's still truth to it. I'm not totally sure, but I thought it was interesting because after all, these kids were raised in this cult from the time that they were born. So it makes sense that just because they decided to leave under threat of death, they still have some adoration or at least respect for the cult leaders. But nonetheless, once in the belly of the island, Abby and Yara witness the Seraphites heading into their armories to prepare for the incoming WLF attack, which is beginning. They see WLF members heading into the island and are taken by complete surprise by this. Honestly, it's a little surprising to me that the Seraphites didn't see this coming, at least a little bit. They have a huge infrastructure throughout the city, as we've seen with bridges that go from rooftop to rooftop, and they're very sneaky. So it seems as though they should have been able to realize that the WLF was mobilizing for some sort of offensive. After all, they were bringing all of their supplies and all of their soldiers into one central area. If that doesn't spook you as the leader of the Seraphites, I don't know what will. But regardless, they're preparing for the offensive. This gives you a little bit of space to explore the island and push through to Abby and Yara's house. While you're doing this, you fight through multiple arenas of Seraphites, all fairly stealth-oriented, but nonetheless, it gives you something to do to shake up the monotony of just walking through sequences and watching small cutscenes. Eventually, you come upon the house, and the following scene plays out. <laughs> And this doesn't really surprise anyone. She was never going to understand, but 
It's also important to note that this severs all ties for Lev, which signaled to me that they were actually being set up to leave Seattle completely without leaving any baggage behind. Whenever a game or a story starts to sever familial and friendly ties to a character, usually it means that they're preparing to make some sort of big transition so that they aren't left with the baggage or having to explain that baggage away. I, however, don't think that this was particularly necessary. I think leaving Lev and Yara's mom behind really wouldn't have been that big of a deal. After all, she's a member of a cult, a cult that wants to kill them. Regardless, Abby, Yara, and Lev push together to the docks, where they want to find a boat and take that boat back to the aquarium. I was never super clear on why these characters couldn't just return to the boat that they had just taken to shore, but nonetheless, they want you to push to the docks, grab a separate, different boat, and escape using that one. I'm not sure if there was damage to the boat when it reached the island, or why they can't use the boat they just took from the pier from the WLF, but nonetheless, they can't for some reason. To me, it seems like more of an excuse just to get these characters to push into the main center of town so that they can see a new set piece as the WLF and Seraphites clash. I get it, it makes sense, but it just doesn't seem to logically follow considering that they just took a boat to the island that's much closer than the boat they're trying to push to. I don't know, if there's some really good excuse as to why they can't go back to that original boat, just let me know. So the three start pushing through an old town that's been completely abandoned, and it looks as though the Seraphites don't even actively patrol it since it's from the old world. Everything's quiet until... This way. Save my life. Move out of the way. We'll deal with you back home. He's not one of them, please. Abby, move. God damn it, he's just a kid. You have three seconds to get away from that scar. One. You're really gonna shoot me? Two. I'm not fucking moving. No! What the fuck? We need to move. She's gone. Oh my god, she's gone. Come on. Those were your fucking people. Hey, you're my people. Listen to me. We're gonna have to fight to get out of this, okay? And then I need you to show us to those boats. We don't let anybody stop us. Yeah? Okay. Okay. Follow me. 
So now we're paired with Lev against the WLF members we previously considered our friends. Be honest, it's a really emotionally confusing chunk of the game since there's so many people constantly yelling at Abby, asking why she's doing this. Now we may not know these characters, but Abby does. She's killing people that she worked with, that she knows, who haven't really done anything wrong themselves, all for the sake of Lev, somebody that she's not even related to, and for whom she has really no reason to care. And that's pretty crazy. I mean, who would do that? Who would kill people that they've previously worked with for somebody they're not related to and just care because they've built a connection to them? Oh. So Abby and Lev come up on a view of what Isaac's group has done. They're torching the whole place. They're literally going scorched earth. And so as we push to the marina to get the boat that we need to escape, we fight multiple waves of Scars and WF members at the same time, sometimes coming across them fighting each other when we interrupt just trying to pass through. Really, it's kind of cool to see all of these enemies interacting with each other and just wiping each other out. It's kind of crazy. Now this sequence has actually gotten a fair amount of crap because there's no infected here, but that to me doesn't make any sense as an accusation or a criticism. This is an island, and it's an island that the Seraphites have lived on for a long time. They likely cleared out the infected on the island very early on and have kept it contained. Sure, it's a little weird to play what many people thought was just going to be a zombie game and to not see zombies for hours and hours on end, but I think it makes sense, at least in the world that they've built. The Last of Us is far more complicated than just a story about zombies. It's really upsetting <laughs> to hear it boiled down to that basic an estimation. Now eventually, Abby and Lev find a horse, hop on it, and ride into the heart of the Seraphite's capital. This really is a visually stunning sequence, and I really can't compliment it enough. The lighting is ridiculously good. It's probably the most impressed I was visually across the entire game, just this one sequence. So Abby rides the horse all the way through to the edge of the docks. After killing more and more WF members, some more Seraphites, climbing through a burning house, you eventually find one last mini-boss in this chapter. He's a brute in the same style as Helga, and there's actually some pretty impressive mess deformation systems at play here. As he gets cut on his body, it actually becomes more and more mutilated, the skin flays open. It's pretty impressive, and it's unfortunate that this type of feature couldn't be applied to absolutely every character at this fidelity level as you attack them throughout the course of the game. I will grant you the mesh deformation system and the gore system in The Last of Us Part 2 is pretty incredible, but if it was on this level, it would be another world. Hopefully we get to see this level of quality in the next generation of consoles. I have a feeling as though we're going to get it and it's going to be pretty badass. Probably the best example of this system working is when you use a scythe to gash his mouth open. Now it seems to me that this can't be just a coincidence that the gash occurs at this place, considering that the Scars got their name, the Scars, because they actively and willingly mutilate their mouths with this type of scar intentionally. Now I took this as a way for Abby and Lev to, in essence, repay the Seraphites for all of the physical and mental damage that they've applied upon Lev and Yara. In other words, taking what the Scars considered a sacred rite and turning it into a way to strike back. Or maybe I'm just reading way too much into this. 
Regardless, after defeating this brute, Abby and Lev grab a rowboat, and they head back to the aquarium with the island burning in the background. We don't really find out what happened after this or how this battle resolved itself, but I don't really think it's important. What we do know is that Isaac is dead, and so the WLF began crumbling upon realizing that their leader was gone. I would therefore assume that they lost the fight, and the Seraphites held their ground, but I don't think it matters. Back at the aquarium, Abby comes across the bodies of Owen, Mel, and Alice the dog. She's absolutely devastated, and it seems as though the writer's job has worked. These characters that we didn't really care about just a few hours of gameplay ago, when Ellie came in and killed them, now actually have a place in our hearts. We know these characters. You don't care that much about Mel, you don't really care that much about Owen, but you have started to care about Abby and Lev. Abby is devastated by this, and I couldn't help but feel bad. And the crazy thing is that at this point, she doesn't even really know that a lot of the other crew members are also dead. She doesn't know, as far as I'm aware, that Nora was brutally bashed by Ellie. She doesn't know about all of the others that Ellie came across and killed on her way to find Abby. And to be honest, I'm not sure if Abby ever found out about those characters' deaths, because as far as I can tell, after the following sequence, she left. They went to Santa Barbara and started a new life. The point is, Abby is devastated, and she starts to go into a rage-driven mode. Remember that map that Ellie dropped and left behind when Tommy and Jesse took her out of the aquarium? Well, Abby finds it. She picks it up, and conveniently, Ellie has marked in a huge circle exactly where they're staying. And so, Abby and Lev go to the Jacksonites' hideout, expecting to find Tommy alone. Again, as far as they know, it's just Tommy here and some other helpers he has. They do know for a fact, though, that Tommy's here. So my assumption would be that Abby really only expects to find Tommy. After breaking in, they find everyone. First, Tommy at the counter in the lobby then Jesse and Ellie as they come through the door. Hands up. Back away from your shit. I said back up! You're making a big mistake. Don't fucking turn around. Love, keep your bow on him. Get on the ground. You gonna kill me like a coward? Shoot this one too. Don't you do it, Ellie. Get out of here. Stand up now. Don't you fucking dare. Shut the fuck up. Oh. All right. Stop. Stop. Toss your weapon. Toss your weapon. Fuck. No. No. I know why you killed Joel. He did what he did to save me. There is no cure because of me. I am the one that you want. Just let him go. You killed my friends. We let you both live. 
And you've wasted it! Wait! Get off of her! This is when the game reaches its climax. You play as Abby as you chase Ellie deep into the depths of the theater's props and storage room. And it's here that we have to play as the character we initially hated and tried to defeat and then flip that on its head, trying to hunt down and kill someone that we fell in love with almost a decade ago. That character being Ellie. Now based on the poll and the responses that you guys wrote to that survey, there's actually a fair number of people that reached this point in the game and refused to continue. They'd played 20, 25, 30 hours of this game, got to this point and realized that they were being asked to kill Ellie and they refused to do it. Now at one point I think that that's a testament to just how phenomenally well connected these characters are to us, the players. We care about them and we don't want to see them mistreated. Now it's really too bad that there wasn't some alternative state where you could actually choose not to continue this fight, forgive Ellie and move on. I think that could have been a cool moment in terms of player agency to resolve this dispute peacefully. But with a linear narrative game such as this, that doesn't really work too well. And so you're forced to engage in this boss fight where Abby, the protagonist in this instance, is chasing after the antagonist, which is Ellie. It's not to say one is right or wrong, because protagonist and antagonist are purely based on the perspective of the author. Now as to whether or not this point in the game works, I think there's an active question here. It's probably going to be a little different for everybody. Some people probably are going to connect to Abby and Lev far more than they connected to Ellie over the course of The Last of Us Part Two. Now of course if you played the original game, you're probably still going to have a lot of that baggage built up from the original game when Ellie was far more likable. The sad truth is that Ellie isn't very likable in this game, as I've said multiple times throughout this critique. But for me, I found myself just sitting and staring at my screen for a moment when I realized what I was being asked to do here. And I think it was because the game didn't completely succeed in what it was trying to do the first time I played the game. Namely, Naughty Dog wanted to make the player feel as though killing Ellie was justified. At the very least, just as justifiable as Ellie killing Abby. But the reason I don't think this has worked too well is because the people that Ellie has taken from Abby were all effectively B-class characters. Owen, yeah, he's great, but he's supporting and he's not particularly charismatic. Definitely not a leading character. However, on the other hand, if Ellie shot and killed Lev right as they entered the theater, I can't help but feel as though this would have worked much better. Likely the player, playing as Abby in this case, would feel much more justified in chasing down Ellie if this had happened. But nonetheless, Abby hunts Ellie down in a boss fight that's basically identical to the one that ended the winter chapter in the first game against everybody's favorite cannibal king. I don't know if it's just lazy repetitive game design or if this is meant to be an actual reversal and simile in and of itself. I, I don't know, but it does seem shockingly similar in terms of how it's laid out and the structure of this boss fight. Maybe it's a coincidence, maybe it's something very intentional. I'm not sure, but at the very least, I thought that it was a direct parallel. The whole thing wraps up with one of the hardest to watch cutscenes in all of gaming, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Ah! <laughs> 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 
She stops short. After Lev calls out to her, she realizes that this isn't going to help anything. Just like killing Joel didn't help her get over her father's death. The moment she moved on from her father's death, or at the very least accepted it, was that first night after she met Lev and Yara, when she realized that she could have a family again, united not in hate and vengeance, but in love and unity. So she lets them go. Abby and Lev leave and Ellie and Dina are left bleeding out on the floor. We cut to black, and the game moves into the final chapter. Now, I don't think I can stress enough just how weird the player likely feels at this point. It's a mixture of a letdown with being blue-balled all at the same time, and if I'm being honest, I really didn't know what to make of it. Now, a lot of other people also pointed out that this was somewhat similar to how Red Dead Redemption 2 started to wrap up its story, with Arthur's death coming, seemingly wrapping up the main story, and then the player entering into an epilogue that seemed important, but not crucial. In fact, I asked several friends of mine whether or not they actually played the epilogue or not after they got through the main story of Red Dead Redemption 2, and you'd be surprised how many of them said that they stopped playing after Arthur died. On the one hand, I get it. You've been following one character for the entire length of the game, and that character's story has seemingly come to an end. So why do you need to continue playing through what is objectively a much more boring sequence for multiple hours at a time if you don't feel as though it's necessary? And when that game came out, I couldn't help but feel as though it was either a very conscious decision on the part of Rockstar to have this epilogue so clearly separate from the main story, or it was a complete and total oversight. In the case of The Last of Us Part II, I don't think it's a direct comparison, but I do think there are similarities. In my estimation, most players have been going through The Last of Us Part II with the hope that it will end in a climactic scene between Ellie and Abby where everything gets resolved. Preferably where one kills the other, or at the very least there's some sort of reckoning. But I wouldn't say that this scratches that itch or satisfies that demand. I don't think it's controversial to say that Abby pretty clearly won this exchange, and if she wanted to, could have killed Ellie and Dina easily, but out of some sense of dignity or grace and forgiveness, pride, whatever it may be, she decided to spare them. So while this may be a resolution of the conflict from Abby's perspective, she's moving on and wants to forget about all of this, it's not a resolution for Ellie, for Tommy, or for Dina, as we'll see in the following scenes. And I think the really frustrating thing for the player is that the entire story has been building to this moment, this exchange, this fight, throughout the entirety of the gameplay time. 
And now that we've reached it, it doesn't resolve itself at all, and instead, Ellie, Dina, and Tommy are left bleeding out on the floor, and in the case of Jesse, he's dead. And especially considering how emotionally exhausting this game is to play, it's really difficult to ask the player to buckle down for another however many hours it's going to take to get through what is effectively the epilogue. And I know it's not technically an epilogue because the story hasn't resolved itself. It's still part of the main story as we move into this next chapter, but still it feels as though it's separate from the main game. And after a lot of contemplation, I'm not sure if Naughty Dog wanted this to be the case or if they even meant for this to feel so different from the core body of the game in Seattle. It seems to me pretty clear that shifting pace very sharply after all of the events of the core game is going to hit the player in a fairly significant way such that they're going to feel very differently. It's something a good number of developers have spoken of in GDC conference speeches and things like that, where they express this frustration with working on a project for years and years and years and losing perspective on it, such that they forget how it would actually feel to play it for the first time. In other words, when you're working really hard on something, you develop a sort of tunnel vision and you lose perspective on what it looks like from the outside. It may seem great to you, but just because you're so focused on the little details, you might have lost sight of the overall picture. Or vice versa, you're focused on the broader picture, so you lose sight of the minutia. Regardless, this final fight leaves the player feeling kind of strange, at least it did for me, and based on a lot of your responses to the survey, it left a lot of you feeling very strange as well. And I don't know about you, but often, strange isn't a feeling I would associate with quality. But with all of that said, after this initial chunk of the game is over, the player is left with a lot of questions unresolved. For instance, is Dina okay? Is she going to survive having her face bashed into cement multiple times? Well, I guess technically it wasn't cement. They put down a particle board so that they could have an excuse as to why she survived. It's a good detail. I'm glad that they put this in there so that it's not totally unbelievable that she survived a cracked skull. But still, this is a pretty rough thing to go through, especially when you're pregnant. So the player is left wondering whether or not she's going to be okay. You also have to ask yourself what's going to happen to this couple when the incoming baby comes along now that Jesse's gone? How is Jackson going to handle having so many of their best and brightest decimated by an out-of-state group? Can or will they ever be able to adjust? I mean, we don't ever really get to know, because in the following sequences, we never return back to Jackson. And perhaps the most important question is, what does Ellie do now? Is she capable of moving on? Is that something that Ellie would even want? Is that something that would even satisfy the player? Or are we setting ourselves up for one last hoorah to try and resolve everything in a desperate attempt to justify the events of the core game itself? Just like Red Dead Redemption 2, it's gonna end up being the latter. Answers to these questions will mostly come, but for now, we're left in the dark. After a cut to black after this fight, we open up on a farm. There's an expansive wheat field with a farmhouse off in the distance and a barn behind it. It's very calm and picturesque. Inside, we see Ellie. She seems healed up and relatively healthy, and she's holding Joel's old broken watch that he got from Sarah in the first game. This is a not-so-subtle way of reminding the player that Ellie is still thinking about Joel and that she hasn't moved on. Also, there's a baby now. This reaffirms that it's been a good long while since the events of the previous scene. 
Furthermore, we see Dina in the kitchen, and it seems as though she's recovered just fine, and she also has her mom jeans coming in clutch. I mean, maybe it's stupid. I'm honestly not sure what it is, but when I saw Dina in this scene, I thought that she just, she looked like a mom. I don't know what it is. Maybe they bushied up her eyebrows and that did it. Maybe it's the strange outfit she has on, or the fact that she's doing dishes. I, I don't know what it is, but they seemingly did a good job of making her appear as a mother. I, I guess props to Naughty Dog. And to be honest, everything seems calm and relatively happy, but nothing ever ends happily in this world. So of course, this won't last for long. Ellie does some routine chores, you dance with Dina a little bit, and you explore the house. Fun little note here is that Ellie actually has a good amount of art in the house that was taken from Joel's house. It's a nice touch, and it makes sense since she would likely want to hold on to parts of him, as we just saw earlier when she had his watch. It's just a really sweet little detail, especially considering the fact that the player will likely not notice this, at least on their first run through the game. I only noticed it once I spent a lot of time recording footage for this video, going back through environments very carefully. I noticed that in Joel's house, there were a lot of really nice-looking paintings that I liked. In fact, I even referenced those earlier in this very video. But then when I went back through this section, I noticed that those paintings looked similar, and I initially thought that they were just reusing assets, which is pretty common in game development. But upon further inspection and deliberation, I realized that this was actually an artistic choice, because Ellie is trying to keep and bring parts of Joel into her life even still. Now after exploring the house and chilling with Dina for a little bit, Dina asks Ellie to bring in the sheep from outside and put them into the barn. So Ellie goes and does this with the baby, and after doing it, Ellie spots one little straggler. And this probably leads to the fastest mood shift of the whole game. Come on, little dude. I really think that this moment is meant to hit the player just as hard as it hits Ellie. Everything seems fine, calm, and relaxed. It seems as though they've moved on from a lot of the struggles of the core game, and that they're living a happy, satisfied life together. But now, everything is falling apart. Ellie's mind won't let her forget what happened to Joel, and she's clearly been unable to move on. Dina knows this, and is understanding because she knows that Ellie can't help this. It's something beyond her control. Just like anybody else who suffers from panic attacks can't really control it. It just happens when it happens. But the game keeps carrying along relatively quickly. We jump to the next day, and there's a guest in the house. It's Tommy. Yeah, he survived the shot to the head. He's clearly got a lot of damage that he's dealing with, and he even struggles walking. I mean, he took a bullet to the head, so 
It's understandable. Clearly, he's not in good shape, but he does not want to let Abby get away with what she's done. He says that he's tracked her to a location in Santa Barbara. Now, even though he doesn't state it outright, it's pretty clear that he's unable to go and chase her himself. He can barely walk, after all, and he's missing an eye now, so he wouldn't exactly be much help if he were to go. And so he's come to Ellie to proposition her for this revenge plot. Now, initially, this might seem relatively far-fetched that Tommy was able to track her down to a city that is very far away from where they're at. Apparently, they're just outside of Jackson in the surrounding area, so they're local, but they have moved out away from the core group. However, I don't think this is as far a stretch as it might initially seem. Tommy has a ton of connections to the Fireflies. If you remember from earlier, Owen said that he wanted to go to Santa Barbara on the boat with Mel, Abby, Yara, and Lev because he thought that there were going to be a lot of Fireflies there that they could connect and join up with. Using the same contacts, it seems, Tommy was able to track a very buff woman with a small, young, Asian individual by her side to this area. So it, it seems relatively plausible that they would be able to track her to this point, especially if Tommy were to put out an APB on this individual trying to find her, which he's clearly done. However, after hearing his proposition, Ellie and Dina strongly reject the idea. They're done with that, or at the very least Dina is and Ellie's going along with it. Now, they have too much to lose. They have a house, a family, and of course, each other. They've been there, done that, and the last time they tried to chase Abby down, it didn't end well. Tommy leaves furious that they're not going to do anything. He feels betrayed and even calls Ellie out since she told him that she was going to do whatever it took to get revenge. It's an understandable reaction considering that Tommy is still furious about his brother's death and that she has now permanently scarred him, but it is a little startling to see Tommy react in such a sharp way towards Ellie. In fact, I can't think of a time when we've ever seen Tommy react or talk to somebody in this way throughout the entirety of this franchise. The closest example would be in the first game when Joel and Tommy got frustrated with each other when they initially visited the power plant, but even that wasn't this sharp or direct. Dina asks that Tommy leaves and then yells at him for a brief moment outside where it can still be overheard by Ellie. But Ellie is still caught up in all of this. She knows that Dina is not okay with her going and trying to end this once and for all, but she's still pondering everything. In fact, in the next scene, we see her walking aimlessly through the house in the middle of the night, unable to sleep and unsure of what to do. She wants revenge, but knows that it may cost her everything. She plays a little ditty on Joel's old guitar to take her mind off of everything, but it doesn't seem to do anything. In fact, it seems to make everything worse. We then jump to the scene of the Jackson Winter Ball that we have only heard discussed up to this point. It plays out just like we saw in the trailer before launch, except that now we see the events described in the first hours of the game. After the happenings of the trailer culminating in the kiss between Ellie and Dina, an old man makes a disparaging comment about Dina and Ellie kissing. Joel steps in and pushes him, which upsets Ellie for some reason. Likely because she feels as though Joel is once again keeping her from fighting her own fights. But don't worry, we'll talk about this more in just a little bit. So, back in the present, Ellie has decided that she has to take Abby on. To finish this, 
once and for all. Perhaps reminded of this confrontation with the old bigoted man, she realizes that she needs to fight her own fights and finish this, otherwise she won't be able to live with herself. However, this time, she's not just leaving Jackson behind. She's abandoning her entire family, this whole thing that she's built up. Once again, it's hard to feel sorry for Ellie here, especially since most people, I think, would say that she should have left well enough alone and not chased Abby again. Literally every single person I've talked to about this final decision by Ellie to leave everything and chase Abby down again has said that this was the wrong decision and that they didn't want her to do it. They wanted her to forgive Abby, to move on. It's yet another example of how emotionally exhausting this game can be to play. Because when you don't agree with what the characters are doing, you start to lose sympathy with them, and that makes it harder to empathize with everything that they're going through. Ellie starts packing up her things when Dina finds her. Dina clearly knows that Ellie's been considering this, but is terrified to see her actually going through with it. Dina begs her to come back to bed, to move on, to forget about everything, to stay with the family and not do this. But Ellie says she has no choice and has to. Dina makes it very clear that she's not going to do this whole thing again. She's not going to go and help her. And if Ellie decides that this is what's most important to her, she shouldn't expect to find her and the baby there when or if she gets back alive. She's effectively giving Ellie an ultimatum. Choose Abby or choose Dina and the family and everything that she's built up with her. Ellie chooses Abby. Again, giving the player very little reason to feel bad or sorry for her losing Dina and for all of the pain that she's likely to encounter in the next few hours as the game wraps up. So Ellie leaves. Dina's left devastated and Naughty Dog pulls a fake out. We jump to California. It's a marked set difference. Everything's very dry and dead. The chapter opens up with the camera focused on a pair of Converse. Anyone who's played the first game knows that this is Ellie's signature shoe, but the camera pans up and we see that it's Lev wearing the shoes and Abby's walking alongside him. Now this is a bit obvious for me, but it's clearly setting up the parallel between Abby and Joel and Ellie and Lev. Whether you think those are fair to draw as comparisons or similes is up to you, but that's clearly what the writers are doing. Ellie's known for her converse, and in fact, it's one of the staples of her outfit in the first game, and even throughout most of the second game. To so clearly show these shoes, to me, is hitting the player over the head with this simile. Now, Abby and Lev are looking for the Fireflies, hoping to find a new home to which they can belong. Again, remembering that Owen suggested Santa Barbara way back when. Now, they had a tip that 2425 Constance in Santa Barbara was a hideout for the underground Firefly network. And so, after Abby and Lev fight through a few infected, they work their way to the basement of the house, and the pair discovers a radio. And after a few attempts, they connect with somebody. And it seems as though Abby and Lev have found their new home and will be safe after all. But again, no. Everything is sad and terrible. Nothing's going to end happily. So just get ready. Everything's going to go terribly wrong. So the two set up a meetup point where they're going to head to meet up with the Fireflies. As the pair leaves the house, they're intercepted by a small gang as they exit out the front of the house. It seems that these people are involved in the slave trade, which, to be honest, I'm stunned, took this long to be featured in the game. 
They're beaten, tied up, and taken away, presumably to be entered into the slave trade and used for manual labor. We then cut to Ellie, who is closing in quickly. She's found their boat and begins pushing into their location after finding a map that has 2425 Constance marked on it. As you push through multiple houses and streets, this is the last zombie hoorah of combat in the entire game, so be sure to enjoy it, because after this, Naughty Dog is going to be sticking with human enemies exclusively. Except for one small exception, which I'll point out in a moment, but still, it's going to be pretty much all human humans after this. Ellie pushes her way through an initial neighborhood and starts climbing down a hill when this happens. If she lasts a month. Uh, can we please just say we're done for the day? Yeah. yeah get that thing down. Let's reset the trash. Really, man? I mean, is she even worth the trip back? It's not like. Hey, get you! Uh, no, 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 no. I'm good. <laughs> Something funny? Like you show your pants. Fuck you say. Oh, little bitch. <laughs> oh, you, you like funny, huh? Get up. Come on. Get up. We don't need no, this. No, man, she's fucked up anyway, man. Come on. Yeah, it's funny, right? Stop. It's funny. Seriously. <laughs> 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 Now, these guys are obviously super dumb, but you have to ask yourself as the player, what's keeping you going other than just going through the motions of continuing to do what the game asks you to do. One of the best things about the early hours of The Last of Us Part Two is that the player is completely on board with Ellie's drive and mission to take out Abby. And as the game goes on, you also start to lose that motivation once you start to sympathize with Abby and her crew. So you end up very conflicted in that final boss fight where you don't want to do anything or hurt either one of these characters. But now, the player still feels like that. And yet, the game designers are asking Ellie to chase down Abby, even though it's caused her to lose everything at this point, and will likely not result in the conclusion that either the player or Ellie would be satisfied with. Some people have said that this is a pacing issue, but I don't think that that's the right way to phrase it. If anything, I think that this is a motivational issue. I think the player doesn't feel motivated to continue on this mission that they're being asked to embark on. 
Now, of course, you can have a game that motivates the player to continue playing purely by way of its gameplay, and there's no narrative reason to continue at all. However, that's not how Naughty Dog games work. Naughty Dog games are entirely about motivating the player by way of this narrative drive. And I'll be honest, it's really too bad that this falls so flat, because this should be the climax of the game, but instead, it feels as though it's a total chore, because the player doesn't feel as though Ellie is justified in what she's doing, and certainly, Ellie is even frustrated with her own decision. The only reason Ellie is continuing on is because she feels an obligation to Joel an obligation that's going to be resolved very shortly. But even so, the player pushes on into the slave trader camp known as The Resort. It's not a sassy or funny name, it's just that it's an old resort, so they call it The Resort. It's, it's pretty simple. Now this section does feature my favorite gun of the entire game, but it's so damn powerful that it removes any need for any finesse whatsoever. So with this newfound super weapon, you fight your way through the resort's main building where all of the slaves are housed. And to be honest, this section is actually pretty bad, especially when you're considering that it is the final section of the game. This is the final gameplay section of the game other than the final boss, quote unquote, fight, and it's painfully uninteresting. The only thing that shakes it up a little bit is having zombies chained up that you can release on the human NPCs. But other than that, there's really nothing that's interesting about this level. And even those zombies, you shoot off their chains or disconnect them and they start attacking the other people, the other NPCs, and then you just end up having to kill the zombies before they come to you if they're not already killed by those human NPCs. So it, even by itself, doesn't do anything new or different. It's just bland. And it's unfortunate because it really should be the climax, but instead it just lands super flat. I was really surprised to see this because usually Naughty Dog is pretty good about sticking the landing. They go crazy big and elaborate in the final sections of the game, whether you're looking at Uncharted or even the original Last of Us game where they really push the boundary of difficulty. But here it, it just doesn't work. But even so, after killing countless slavers, Ellie finds her way to the beach. She's told by several other prisoners that this is where Abby and Lev have been moved after they tried to escape. And usually the slaves are left here hung up until they die. And I gotta say, it's pretty surreal once you reach this beach, and what Ellie finds there is pretty upsetting. Abby? Now there's actually a fake out with the girl in the center that has the braid. It looks like Abby, especially Abby the last time that we saw her, but it's not Abby. Abby, in fact, you just walked past and she's in much worse shape. Truly, she doesn't even look like the same person. Now, it took a moment, but Abby recognizes Ellie here, but she's not interested in fighting. Instead, the moment that Ellie cuts her down, she goes to help Lev. Abby then carries Lev into the distance, despite her weakness, and they come up on the same boat that we've seen in the title screen every time we've booted up the game to this point. 
Even now, Abby is purely concerned with taking care of Lev, making sure that they're able to get out safely. She even leads Ellie to the boats to help her escape, unaware that Ellie has come to kill her and enact the revenge that she sought out initially. As far as we know, Abby may think that Ellie was being housed as a slave herself and has escaped to this point. But whatever it may be, Abby gets down to the boat area, and Ellie, still wounded from the tree branch that she was impaled with, and Abby, wounded from the weeks or months of torture, at their very end, have to face off in one final painful battle. Ellie demands to fight with Abby, to finish this once and for all. She even takes out her switchblade and threatens to kill Lev if Abby doesn't engage with her. And so, left with no choice, Abby decides that she'll fight Ellie. Not for her, not for Ellie, but for Lev. Now if you showed a player this fight scene at the very start of the game, it would probably give them a lot of pleasure. It would feel good for the player to literally hack and slash the person that killed Joel to pieces. But instead, it's absolutely horrible. It's pathetic. And no part of this feels like a comeuppance or like justice. And I think if anything, this means that the game's arc worked. It actually went from me wanting to kill Joel's killer to wanting to forgive her and move on. It's simple, but it's powerful. And as this fight continued on, all I could ask for was that they would just stop. But the fight continues each growing weaker and weaker until the fight comes to its inevitable conclusion.
We're now back at the farmhouse. It seems to have been quite a while since everything is so dilapidated. The house is empty, the paint's chipping, the wood's warped, and I think all of this is meant to show that Dina moved out with the baby and that Ellie is now alone. But regardless, it's been quite a while since anyone's been here. And so while it may be meant to show that Ellie is alone and that the ramifications for her actions have taken much more of a toll than just the loss of a couple fingers, I think it might not be that simple. And this might actually be a happier ending than it might initially seem to be, but we'll get to that in just a few minutes. Ellie walks through the empty house, eventually coming into one room that has what seems to be most of Ellie's old things and a lot of Joel's items that were collected throughout the house. She takes up Joel's guitar and plays a strained version of the song that he played for her in the beginning. Her missing fingers, now a permanent example of the distance between Joel and Ellie, and their inability to truly connect. She can't even play the song properly or fully now. We then cut to the most important scene of the whole game, a scene that I couldn't do justice even if I were to spend weeks writing it out word for word, so instead I'm just going to let it play. Seth under control. Yeah, I know. And you need to stop harassing Jesse about my patrols. Okay. Uh, Dina. Is she your girlfriend? She, that was just one kiss. It doesn't mean anything. She just, I don't know why she did that. But you do like her. <sighs> so stupid. I have no idea what that girl's intentions are, but... But I do know that she would be lucky to have you. You're such an asshole. I'm not trying to. I was supposed to die in that hospital. 
my life would have fucking mattered. But you took that from me. Somehow the Lord gave me a second chance at that moment. I would do it all over again. I don't think I can ever forgive you for that. But I would like to try. And just like that, the game is over. Closing in on the same shot that the game opened up with, a focus on Joel's guitar as he was cleaning it at the very start, describing what happened at the hospital at the end of the first game. The last scene demonstrating how Ellie was going to try and forgive Joel and move on the very night before his passing. The story reaches a surprising conclusion. This is why back at the beginning of the video, I told you that Ellie wanting to have a movie night with Joel was so 
very important. It was going to be their first step towards healing. They were going to try and bury the hatchet, which is why Ellie was so unbelievably distraught when she lost Joel before this healing could take place. But it seems as though after all of this contemplation, all of this nervousness, all of this stress, all of this hatred that had built up over months, and at this point years of struggling with Joel's demise, that she's realized the best way to deal with that grief is to accept that he's gone and to move on, living her life happily, not seeking revenge, but living it with people like Joel, who loved her for her, and where she could enact and practice that very same love and affection that she received. And as she walks off into the distance, she's leaving everything behind, all of Joel's old items, everything that he left her, she has moved on. And it seems as though, after a very long journey, Joel and Ellie's story has finally come to an end. And just like that, the game is over. I mean, I really don't know how to break down where my mind was when I first saw these credits roll. Um, and I feel as though the best way to kind of wrap all of this up is by talking with you guys one-on-one -on -one in an unscripted way where I can just wrap up all of my thoughts because I think that this game is truly exceptional, again, in the purest sense of the word, where it's an exception to the rule. Most games, you can give a thumbs up, a thumbs down. You can say it's really good or it's really bad. And The Last of Us Part Two as a game, I think is very, very good. It's an enjoyable gameplay experience. I think for the most part, it works really well, except for some pacing issues. But a lot of those pacing issues are problematic primarily because of the narrative, because you want to focus on one character and you're having to keep swap between the two. But even so, there's some gameplay pacing issues, such as having problems with um, climax building and making sure that the final boss fights are really intriguing and interesting and things like that. But all told, as far as a game is concerned, it, it's very well done as a game. And most people who have a problem with The Last of Us Part Two don't deny that. They accept it and agree with it. So that doesn't seem to be where the criticisms tend to come out. I think where most criticisms find themselves presented are with regards to the direction Naughty Dog chose to go in. Because the writers, of course, had the option. They didn't have to go the direction that they did. They didn't have to kill Joel off for one. They didn't have to uh, make you empathize with Abby. They didn't have to make you play as Abby for the second half of the game. They didn't have to do any of that, but that's the direction they chose to go in. And I think, as far as I can tell, most people were hoping and expecting that the game would be about Ellie, and that's it. They weren't interested in playing and getting to know this new character. And I think that that's just the frustrating thing about it is that a lot of people were hoping and expecting to have exposure and experience with Ellie that was not just dreadful through and through. But instead, they were forced to go through this very frustrating and, and very emotionally taxing journey with her which I think is probably where I land because I really cherish Ellie as a character. I care about her and I connected with her on a level I didn't realize I could connect with a character in the first game. And her actions in the second game make her 
very difficult to sympathize with because she's doing things that are objectively pretty dumb and stupid that aren't for the betterment of her and the people around her. She's being fairly selfish in what she's doing and she does feel a, a an obligation of sorts to Joel to continue on in her revenge journey. But still, it's not the same as the actions of Joel in the first game where he goes after Ellie even though he's killing a lot of people to get to her and to save her from the fireflies and everything they're about to do to her. At least there you can understand why he's doing it and you might even agree because you care about Ellie too and you might say, I care about her so much I would probably do the same thing if I was in his shoes. With Ellie in this game, many times I found myself saying I would not have done that. That was the wrong choice. I don't agree with that. I care about you, Ellie, and that's why I disagree with what you're doing. She's on a self-destructive, borderline suicide mission throughout the entire game, and that just makes it so it's hard to sympathize with her, if not impossible. And when you don't sympathize with somebody, you shouldn't be surprised when people don't connect with them, which is why for a lot of people, they found themselves feeling as though that this wasn't a, a Last of Us game even by itself. It wasn't a sequel. It was a completely separate story. Ellie had grown up and become a different person, and she was almost unrecognizable from the character she was in the first game, uh, which is why Naughty Dog keeps bringing up all these flashbacks to kind of remind you of what Ellie used to be like, but that just isn't enough because you're playing in the current timeline, and if that Ellie is not enjoyable, isn't sympathetic, and you don't care about her, you don't care about her. So when we bring up the question whether or not Ellie is is a well-written character in this story. I think for the story they were trying to tell, she was well-written and it accomplished the purpose, which for Naughty Dog was to make you sympathize with somebody that killed a character you loved and cared about, to make you see the other side of the story, to understand all the perspectives and to get that sometimes violence isn't the answer and sometimes terrible things happen and are somewhat justified or that you could even find yourself in the shoes of that character doing that thing if you were put into some like different circumstances you know and i think that that's a really interesting story to tell and i think that's a fair story to tell and that's when i think of the game that way i find myself much more impressed with it and thinking that it's absolutely a masterpiece but i think my frustration is that it was a last of us game and uh, that they sacrificed not just Joel, but also Ellie at the altar of that story. Because I don't think that creating new characters and telling the story from start to finish with new characters would have been as successful. I think part of what makes that story arc of forgiving the unforgivable, the title of this video, I, I think that's part of what, uh, of what makes it so impressive is that you are dealing with characters you've known effectively for a decade at this point. You've known for seven plus years. By the time you're watching this, you might have known them for, for longer than that. And I think that that's just what's really frustrating but understandable, is that they sacrifice these two characters that you love for the sake of telling this story when they uh, reassured us prior to launch that they were doing what was best for the characters, that they weren't going to do them dirty, that this was what was best for Joel and Ellie, and they wouldn't be making the game if they didn't feel as though it was the right story to tell. So I, I can understand uh, the frustration on that end. 
A lot of people also are frustrated that the game doesn't seem to have a happy ending, that Ellie lost everything and then moves on and forgets Joel and forgets Dina and leaves everything behind and seemingly has lost everything, hasn't gained anything other than maybe coming to grips and peace with what happened with Joel moving on, leaving all of his stuff behind in the farmhouse. But I actually think that there's remnants of a, a happy ending here. And it's something that's a small detail, and it's something I didn't really consider until uh, a good number of people had tweeted it at me and had um, mentioned it on the Discord. And it's something that once I started to investigate it, I was kind of blown away, and I thought that it's actually a really interesting theory. Because you see at the end of the core story of The Last of Us Part Two, after Ellie and Abby have their fight out, Ellie is not wearing any sort of adornment. She uh, is bare-wristed. But when you see her back at the farmhouse in the final scene of the game, she's actually wearing this very bracelet, which is why it's interesting that they included it as part of the collector's edition. This is actually Dina's bracelet um, that she has. And the, the one that they include here, I mean, it's just, it's a crappy little collector's edition you know trinket but it's still it's still fun um but ellie's wearing that and ellie's wearing it even though seemingly she's split up with dina and dina moved away and has completely cut ties and the theory basically goes that they've returned to the house after a good amount of time at least ellie has the house is cleared out and they've decided to completely move on from Jackson. They're moving out, which is why the house is much more dilapidated. Um, and Ellie has decided to leave all of Joel's things behind because she needs to move on and she needs to stop bringing this with her. And so her wearing of the bracelet isn't just meant to symbolize that she still feels a connection with Dina or that she misses Dina or wishes she had made a different decision, but that it's actually a, a direct message that she and Dina are back together and that they've decided to move on together. Dina has forgiven Ellie and that they're effectively living happily ever after. Now, is that a stretch? Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps not many things in the last of us, uh, the world of the last of us have happy endings, but I think the tone of the end of the game is very uplifting, very bright and sunny. And the title screen at the end of the game goes back to a sunny beach right outside the resort where the game reaches its climax, which I think symbolizes the same thing. It's, it's a bright, happy ending. Morning has come. Uh, the light is always after the darkness. The sun has risen after night. Use any analogy or, or simile you want. So I'd like to think that the story actually has a happy ending and that Ellie and Dina and the baby all got back together and they're off living in some cabin in the middle of nowhere. They've left Jackson, they've moved on, and they're just not going to be burdened by any of this anymore. That's at least what I choose to believe because I think Ellie deserves that ending after all of this and so that's what i'm going to go with until i learn differently and i think the fact that the designers included the bracelet on ellie's wrist at that ending farm scene is directly indicative of that being what happened uh, i think it's a little nod maybe a little hint hint that things actually ended happily 
But who knows? I'd like to think that things ended happily. But all told, the game is very difficult to come to terms with. Because it wasn't what I was expecting and perhaps even hoping for. But even so, I think it succeeded in what it was trying to do. As I said earlier in the video, I think the mission was to get you to sympathize with Abby and to flip the script so that you went from hating Abby to caring about her. And so when you reach this conclusion that you initially had hoped for, for Ellie to take on Abby and kill her, it, it feels empty and hollow and unsatisfying because you realize that this isn't as simple as just revenge. And I think that that in and of itself as a narrative decision uh, is truly remarkable. It really is. Whether you love it or hate it, you've got to give Naughty Dog credit for having the balls <laughs> to do something so unbelievably risky that has obviously polarized the fan base, pissed off a lot of people. I can only imagine the hate mail that they've received since this went live. But they knew that it would. They knew that it would. And uh, they chose to do it anyways when they didn't need to. They could have done just an obligatory, you know, sequel where Joel and Ellie embark on some new journey. Maybe Tommy gets murdered by Abby and then they chase him down. And maybe right before the final scene, Abby kills Joel and then Ellie gets revenge on Abby, wipes her out, and it's kind of the Uncharted style ending where everything wraps up, but a character died, and it, it makes you feel more appreciative of what you have, and they could have done that. That would have been the easy way to go, though. And while I think it would have been received well, the gameplay would have been really solid, I don't think it would have challenged so many of us to think about video game narratives in a different way. Because as I've said for many, many years at this point, and by many, many years, I mean like two or three, um, I think video games are the evolution of narrative storytelling. I think gaming is a remarkable tool for storytelling. And I can't help but feel as though The Last of Us Part Two takes a huge leap forward in the types of stories that can and will be told on the platform especially moving into the next generation. Now, some people think that that's terrible. Some people hear that and they think, why can't stories just end happily ever after nowadays? Everything's gotta be so dark, everything's so dreary, everything's so sad. And while that's true for some stories, I think more than anything, it's just trying to push narratives to the point where they can be thought-provoking in a way that very few happy-go-lucky stories are. I enjoy Uncharted. I'm making a whole series of Uncharted critiques. Uh, and that's what I was doing before The Last of Us Part Two launched. And this whole video experience began. But those stories don't really make you ponder. They don't make you think. I, I've never played an Uncharted game and then sat back and just like, wow, what does this mean? What do I think of this? I don't even know. I'm so conflicted. I have so many thoughts and emotions going on. Usually Uncharted's emotional repertoire consists of action and excitement, and then maybe some light heartwarming moments with some witty banter back and forth between two characters you like, and that's kind of it. But I think Naughty Dog is trying to push the boundary and tell a story that does a lot more than that. 
and I think they're successful. And I think it's uh, pretty remarkable what they've managed to accomplish. So while I'm frustrated with The Last of Us Part Two for pacing issues, for flip-flopping back and forth between characters so frequently that you start to lose focus, I do think that it's truly a remarkable game, and I think it does far more good than it does bad. And while a couple things are handled kind of clunkily, and I think some characters aren't as relatable as they were hoping, for instance, Owen and Mel, when they get killed, you're supposed to feel really bad, as far as I can tell. And I just, even after playing through Abby sections, it just didn't really hit me hard. What hit me hard was seeing Abby so upset about it. It wasn't seeing Owen and Mel killed that upset me. And I, I think that that's more a failure of Naughty Dog's writing than a success. I, I don't think that was intentional, uh, as I said earlier in the video. But all told, I think the game's pretty amazing. And it's taken me months of playing through it multiple times to come to that conclusion. And I, I'll tell you right now, when I finished the game the first time, I was not... Uh, I was not in the same place I am now. I would not have said that I, I thought it was a masterpiece. I would not have said that I thought it was amazing and remarkable. I, I was pretty frustrated um, and emotionally torn apart. But after playing through the game a couple more times, it, it really is kind of like an acquired taste. It's like a, a fine wine or a caviar or something. It's it's something where the more that you engage with it, the more you realize and appreciate all of the little details, all of the um, interweaving plot lines and character arcs. And for that reason, I think the game is is truly remarkable. Will it take my game of the year? I, I don't know. I'm really hoping that Cyberpunk 2077 comes out and just blows us all away. I love CD Projekt Red. And from what I saw behind closed doors at E3 last year of Cyberpunk, I think it has the possibility of being really impressive, but I'm also worried that hype is getting out of control, which is very possible with that game, but we'll see. Who knows? By the time you're watching this video, uh, you've probably played through Cyberpunk, or you might have played through Cyberpunk, and you'll be laughing at what I'm saying, or maybe you'll be like, yeah, no, it was terrible. It was awful. I, I have no idea. I have no idea. But uh, what I can say is that I think The Last of Us does a lot to move the industry forward. I think that the risks that they took are truly uh, applaudable, if that's even a word. I appreciate that they took those risks, that they didn't play it safe. And while I think a lot of us probably wish they had gone a different direction, I respect the hell out of them for what they did. And I think it worked. And... Uh, while I, I wouldn't have thought to go this direction, I'm, I'm in the end, I think, glad that they did. But even now, I'm, I'm very conflicted. And uh, I think the point of art is to make you think, to make you ponder everything that went on in the story that was being told, to ponder your place in this world and everything that's going on. And I think The Last of Us Part Two does that in a way that literally no game has ever done for me. And for that, I just have to say thank you to Naughty Dog. They've done something truly incredible. Truly. So that's all from me. Thank you for watching this monstrosity of a video. At me and everybody that I've worked with on this video, we truly appreciate it. Uh, a big thanks to 
Jacob, my editor for all of the hard work he's done on this video. He's edited a lot of sections that you've seen and been watching for the last few hours. So big thanks to him. And thank you to all of the patrons and all of the viewers who have been so patient because this has been the video that's eaten up all of my time for the last few months as I was getting ready for a wedding, as I was starting a new job. This has consumed all of my time. And while I think The Last of Us Part Two is uh, incredible in a lot of ways. I'm, uh, I think I'm ready to move on and to tackle the next big thing. So it's bizarre to be done with everything. It's bizarre to be at the end of this video. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, please, at the very least, hit the like button. If you really enjoyed it, hit the subscribe button. I, I don't mean to sound entitled, but after all of this, if you really did enjoy this video and got to this point, I, I would like to think that you would at the very least subscribe and maybe even ring the bell so you get notified of the next video. Um, but truly, thank you. Thank you for watching. Thank you for sharing the video. Thank you for donating. Thanks for doing everything that you guys do. You're truly amazing. And I love you all more than you could possibly know. I'll see you in the next video, which will probably be a fair amount shorter, <laughs> but truly, thank you. I love you guys, and I'll see you in the next video. Bye-bye.